we can develop dogs all day long and and you know the, the dog we can train them up to whatever mission we want to what i think the marine corps does really well is developing the handlers and we develop them as we brought the capabilities up to date. We developed that military policeman who was standing in the gate wearing black gear and a badge up to being a guy who could go out with MARSOC and lead a patrol and get dirty with the boys just like one of the operators. What's up, everyone? Hope you're well, and thank you for tuning in to the podcast. Our guest for this episode is a retired Marine who served 20 years on active duty, filling various billets within the Marine Corps' military working dog program. He served as a handler, trainer, instructor, specialized search dog handler, kennel master, Marine Security Guard Detachment Commander, and the Multipurpose Canine Program Manager. He started his career in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, at the Provost Marshal's Office Military Working Dog Section, where he conducted multiple missions with his military working dog. He continued his canine career at Lackland Air Force Base as a military working dog trainer, selecting, training, and certifying canines for the Department of Defense. In the rapidly changing military working dog program, he became the first Marine instructor for a new advanced off-leash military working dog capability, the Specialized Search Dog. He attended an SSD course in Israel, training with an elite canine unit and paired with SSD Luca Kilo 458. You can read about Luca and her life in the book Top Dog, The Story of a Marine Hero Luca by Maria Gudavich. In 2010, he deployed beside 30 military working dog teams to Afghanistan to support Operation Enduring Freedom, while assigned to the Military Police Support Company's Military Working Dog Platoon under the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1MEF. He later completed a tour as a Marine Security Guard Detachment Commander and returned to the Military Working Dog Field as a Kennel Master for 1MEF's Military Working Dog Platoon. While assigned to this platoon, he deployed to Kuwait, establishing a forward-deployed Marine kennel to provide various units with military work dog support, and he completed his career serving as the Marine Forces Special Operations Command Multipurpose Canine Program Manager, preparing canine teams for special operations worldwide. Throughout his 20-year career, he has gained a wealth of operational experience, and with that experience, he has mentored and trained numerous military work dog teams for deployments overseas. Please allow me to introduce you to Chris Willingham. All right, well, Mr. Chris Willingham, it's been a long time. You're definitely a busy man. I can't thank you enough to sit down with me and explain kind of, um, you know, your time in the Marine Corps Military Work Knock Program. You know, I can't thank you enough. I know it, it takes a, a little bit of time to sit down and do it, but thank you. No, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate this opportunity to, one, kind of talk about just the Military Working Dog Program in general, and then... uh and I, you know, I appreciate the mission you're doing. It's kind of capturing some of the history and legacy of, because there will definitely close the chapter in the in the military working dog program. So, looking right. forward to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, keyword chapter. It's a long chapter, um, and the way it came to an end, you know, it is the way it is. It's the nature of the Marine Corps, but um, I think that we'll definitely have an opportunity. We have a little bit of a road ahead to kind of capture the stories and get everything out there for for these guys. Um, so, I know like. 100% your name in the program uh, goes a long way. Uh, we've crossed paths professionally a couple of times. Um, I was never stationed with you or anything like that. Um, for those who do not know exactly who you are, you mind just giving them 
a quick rundown, you know, where you grew up, how you, and what brought you into the Marine Corps and how you got started. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I joined the Marine Corps in 1999 and I served for 20 years and I was fortunate to serve a majority of my career, about 17 in the military working dog program. Um, started off at a PMO at Camp Lejeune, uh, ended up spending seven years in the MEF, uh, MEF platoon. I uh, spent time down at Lackland Air Force Base as a canine trainer and then one of the first Marine or the first Marine uh, specialized search dog instructors for that course. Um, and then I did some, I did three years on uh, MSG duty and then I finished up my career at, at MARSOC as the multi-purpose canine program manager. Awesome. Yeah, you pretty much hit every spectrum of the, the canine career there. I was very fortunate, yeah. very fortunate. Um, so if we can go back, back in time, like early stages, like uh, your your boot camp stage, like where, when did you decide or how did you find out that you were being an MP and then eventually get into the dogs? So if you're looking back in the, in the kind of a big picture, you know, it was, it was before 9-11, so deployments weren't really a thing. So my dad was in the Marine Corps. He was in Vietnam. Uh, he just served for three years. He wanted to go serve in, in Vietnam. He was a, a machine gunner. After that, he got into law enforcement in Alabama, and he was um, uh, a state trooper, and then he went to work in narcotics for uh, almost 35 years, 36 years. And he never pushed me one way or another. He wanted me uh, to pr pursue the college route versus the Marine Corps. So I started in college after high school. I went for uh, two years. And then I just felt a calling, man. I felt like there was just something more out there for me. I just wanted a little more life experience. And my goal was to do four years, and I was going to go back to Alabama and become a cop and go work with my dad. Like, that was it. Like, I just um, – that appealed to me. Like, that law enforcement mission appealed to me at the time. And – um, but I, I just felt like I could I could develop a little bit if I went out and got some life experience and and just four years in the Marine Corps leadership experience and just see a little bit outside of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I was going to come back and and you know kind of see where it, where it took me. Uh, well, I, I joined and I went to Paris Island. Uh, my first duty station was at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and I was a regular MP. So I didn't I didn't go to K nine school out of MP school. I was a regular MP, uh, military policeman. Right. Uh, for about 10 months before I had opportunity to go to canine school. My first roommate in the Marine Corps uh, was a guy named uh, Tommy Doler, and he was a dog handler. And he's like, man, you got to come check out what we do. And I, at that point, I had no idea we had dogs in the Marine Corps. Yep. Uh, so I went down and, and looked at the kennels. They had, I think it was like 18 dogs there. It was one of the bigger ones at the time and uh, one of the bigger kennels at the time. And uh, – I was like, man, this is, you get to do this in the Marine Corps? Like, y'all playing with dogs in the Marine Corps? Like, this is, this is incredible. I watched a couple of demonstrations and just saw some of the training and just, you could tell it was just different. Like, right. the, it was a family within a family. Like, being a Marine is something special. Being canine is different, man. It's just, you know, being an outsider looking in, I could already tell it was a special brotherhood and just the way they talked to each other, the way they, they interacted. Um, it, it, uh, you could still get a lot done without having like uh, some of the structures in the Marine Corps. Right. And there was a lot of shit talking and there was, uh, but at the end of the day, the work got done. Yeah. And there was a sense of pride there that uh, you didn't see everywhere else. And it was just a close knit community. I was like, man, how do I do this? Like, so I started volunteering on my off time, which I didn't have a whole lot. I was a PFC in the Marine Corps. Uh, but when I, when I did have the opportunity, even on weekends, I'd come and help out whoever had kennel care, and just kind of like learning more about the program and 
And then the opportunity came up to, uh, they had a school seat and there was a handful of us to put in. A lot of people wanted, you know, several people put in for, for the canine seat. And so I had to go through a, a vetting process with the handlers because at the end of the day, the handlers are the ones who are making a big part of the decision at, at that time, like, because they're, they're the ones who are going to have to work with me day in, day out. So, that, you know, they want to vet me and make sure that work ethic, team yeah. player, humble, I'm not coming in all cocky. So they, they're the ones who are really vetting me. And then I have to do a, a interview with the kennel master, which they take their Marines word for, but also they, right. he wants to talk to me and see it from his perspective as a staff NCO. Uh, so you go through all that and, um, the one thing that – and I I, I was going to get the job anyway. Like, I just <laughs> I, – I was. But something that, that helped me out is I went and watched a canine demonstration at the kennels. And it was for, like, Boy Scouts or something. There was a guy, Pete Marlin, um, who who worked nights. And he had a – I think it was like a beat-up Chevy S10. His family was in town. He got up off of nights, got in his S10, and drove to the – uh, hotel to go meet his family. There was a bag of marijuana in his gas cap, and uh, I'm the only one who heard where he was going. So when they're doing a the demonstration, they turn around and say, "Now we're going to show you how our dogs detect drugs." And the vehicle's not there, and Perfect. they kind of like get, they kind of get through the demo the best they can. But already people are starting to get frantic and looking around to try to figure out a plan on how to find this. And uh, I told the, uh, it was Gunner, uh, Gunner Sergeant Selvetti. I said, Gunny, I heard where he said he was going. I can go ahead and drive there while they're working on the plane because they still have these kids there. And I took off. Um, and it was when I got to the hotel, the bag of marijuana was just hanging by a couple threads, like outside of it, it's like, <laughs> you know, busted up truck. And uh, and bringing that back and making that phone call. And at that point, I think it was probably like a car phone. It cost me $5 to make that phone call. Yep. <laughs> like when you had pay phones. Yeah. I had like, you know, got to get a pay phone bar a quarter. Um, but helping out your kennel master from getting in that kind of trouble, it, it definitely gives you a leg up and getting in the canine seat. Oh, yeah. uh, so that was, uh, that was kind of my introduction to it. And then I went to canine school in, uh, July of 2000. Okay. Is it July of 2000? Yeah. So that's definitely pre nine eleven, And so Lackland, was uh was just straight you know le force just normal basic handlers course at that point and so how was uh how was lackland in 2000 was it uh was there any else going on besides obviously there's no global war on terror right now but where guys going like you know i guess like somewhere else in the middle east kind of like you know kind of like desert storm was in the 90s just different posts and stuff yeah. at, the, at that point it wasn't um it wasn't even a topic of conversation like they they had Second um, MP support battalion stood up shortly after that, but when I went to canine school, it wasn't it wasn't a thing. So it was just more about the law enforcement mission and just uh, training how to be a dog handler. And I went, I had two Marines and I think it was nine Air Force in my in my canine class. Right. That's pretty heavy. Yeah. So we went through uh, we just went through the basics of phase one, phase two, learning detection, learning uh, learning the patrol side. I certified the detection dog I had and came out top dog on that side. And then uh, went back to Camp Lejeune, and that's where I was paired up with uh, Techie, uh, who was my first uh, military working dog. She's a patrol explosive detection dog. And she was she was fairly new to the program herself. Uh, I was her first handler, and she was probably one of the only dogs 
I mean, there's, there's a few out there. She's probably one of the only dogs that only had two handlers her entire career. It was me and Erin Knuckles. Okay. And so I, and she was really green. Like she's certified fast at Lackland, very high trainability, but they didn't have a handler for her when I got back. So she was, uh, she was a little bit out of shape and uh, she had a false response problem and uh, she had she's had some issues because she was a green dog and there's, there's a little bit of a lull between the shipment from Lackland and getting her to Lejeune and yep. um, and so that was my first dog that's my first challenge and I love that dog from the beginning man it was uh it t- it, it taught me a lot about patience which is right. one of the most important uh, characteristics you can have as a dog handler dog trainer um, and so those the trainers like really held me accountable to yep. be patient with this process uh, I had uh, Brady Russell was our trainer and he was. He was really good. Like, he was a good trainer. Kurt John was there with us and really good trainer. These guys taught me a lot. And um, But I took her basically and almost had to retrain her to some degree of building her search stamina up. We had to obviously build that rapport. Everybody has to go through that. But I, almost, I had to build her search stamina up. I had to reintroduce her to a couple of the odors because she wasn't the best on odor at that time. Right. Um, and, then, and then when she started clicking, like, I mean, she became one of the best dogs in the kennels. Like, just – just she was her her trainability was incredibly high, um, and I, I think that she had just kind of that it factor of wanting to. She was a German Shepherd, so she wanted to have kind of please the handler, yep. and I you know tapping into that to really get the full potential out of her, top notch man. And we went on uh, we went on Secret Service missions together. Um, we went up to UNGA, the United Nations General Assembly. Right. So this is like when the the Twin Towers were still there, obviously. Yeah, uh, went back a year, you know, year and a half later when they, you know, after they've been torn down. So that was a that was a whole unique experience of seeing them, sure. and then just a short time later, you know, going up there and seeing Ground Zero. Um, we went to Camp David. Now, and then this is always like a twenty, twenty-one year old dude, like very unique opportunities. Yeah. Like I, I got the experience I was looking for out of, you know, leaving Tuscaloosa, Alabama for those four years. Um, and probably the best the best uh, mission I supported was. Uh, with with uh, with Techie was the Super Bowl after right. after nine eleven happened, uh, in in September the following February down in New Orleans, uh, they sent twenty seven dog teams down there military dog teams to help beef up the security. Right, and so Techie and I went and it was a, a full week and we were doing twelve hour shifts and I was on day shift. As and again now at this point I'm I think I was I think I was twenty one at this point. And searching like the John Madden cruiser and the team buses, and uh, I got fortunate. I got on the VIP gate, so everybody that was everybody yeah. was coming through the gate. And you're you're dressed in like a suit with a dog, and so you just you stand out. You look a little different, so you're getting to talk to people yeah. like like LL Cool J and Gwen Stefani and um, Puff Daddy, and like everybody in between. Like it was a <laughs> everybody was down there. Uh, very unique opportunity. And well, then the the Super Bowl kicked off. It's some weird time, like six twelve or something. Well, my shift ended at six, and I still had all my credentials. Uh, and me and one of the other handlers went down and watched the Super Bowl from the field. That's awesome. And it was when the yeah. the Patriots were playing the the Rams, and Patriots won on the last second kick. So, like to be right there on the field as it happened, like that was that was a pretty unique yep. experience. Man. <laughs> and no one else know anything else other than. There's a dude in a suit here, and yeah, got I got my credentials. It. You yeah. act like you're supposed to be there. That's most of life. Just act like you're supposed to be there, and people leave you alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, as you mentioned, that's after nine uh, eleven. So, do you remember how was you know witnessing nine eleven there as a as a handler on Lejeune? What was that like? So I, I was uh, 
I, I was living in the kennels. There's a there was a back room that uh, that same guy, uh, uh, Pete Marlin, lived in, um, along with another gentleman. And they both got out of the Marine Corps, and they were picking two new handlers to go live in the kennels. And it's basically like you had your own apartment, and you also didn't have to do the field day that you had to do in the barracks. Yeah. As, as single Marine, you couldn't beat that. And our job was just to just, you know, you got 24-hour coverage for the dogs. Like in North Carolina, it does – you do get some uh, bad weather. So we were there to take care of the dogs during those snow and ice storms. And uh, But at the end of the day, it was a pretty good gig. Everybody wanted it, uh, to be able to, you know, stay – all the single dudes living in the barracks would rather live in the kennels. Right. Um, so me and Matt Pearson were uh, in the kennels. And both of us were supposed to go up to uh, Unga again, up to New York. Uh, we already had DTS approved and, and flights approved, and we were supposed to fly up. It, I think it was like Wednesday or Thursday, and 9-11 happened on Tuesday. So we're literally like, everything's packed. We're kind of finishing up our, our work. And um, and we had we had cable in our in our room, and Matt saw it first. And it's like, dude, you got to check this out. And then – just like everybody else in America, I like just watched everything unfold in front of you. And yeah, I remember I mean, even my parents were calling me and have to ask if I knew something else. Like, dude, I'm, I'm a lens, I'm a 21 year old lens corporal. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know what anything else. So, um, but yeah, just, I just remember all the uncertainty and just at that point, you didn't know it was a terrorist attack. Nobody knew what it was. Everything, all speculation, everything was getting thrown around in those first few minutes. And, um, and then when it started to kind of clear as to that it was a terrorist attack, at the time I didn't realize like how big of a moment, you know, how big of an impact that moment would have on my life. Um, but but you know that things are changing globally. Things are changing with the Marine Corps. You, you, there's a there's a mission coming. There's a combat mission coming. Um, and I, it, I mean, it didn't materialize for the most part for another year and a half, like for the big invasion of Iraq. Um, but it just started feeling different. And they shut down all the travel force, and we started doing 24-hour uh, gate searches. Again, you didn't know there's more threats coming. You didn't know uh, if there was another target they were looking for. So everything got shut down. And we started searching 100% of the vehicles coming through. We had to develop new practices to make sure the dolls didn't get worn out. We had to develop a new, you know, a whole new like work schedule. And it was just 24 hours a day nonstop. And that, now that start that only lasted for the first like probably three weeks, and you had eventually had to start you know, kind of tailoring it back when you realize there's no more threats, and now you didn't go back to what it was, it never would, but you started kind of slowly start to peel back a little bit on, and we started developing our RAMs like the random anti-terrorism measures of just doing random searches and you know picking places on base and just searching random vehicles. So it was just all part of a, a, a layered security plan for the base. And I think we responded to, it was over 25 bomb threats during that first couple of weeks. And it was just, I don't know, hoax or who knows what it was. But we, we had to go and respond to, to all of them and search everything like it was a real deal. And you didn't know. So that was kind of my, my first kind of like experience with just real world searching, uh, uh, minus the couple, you know, Secret Service missions I'd done. But this one had, that also had a different feel when those first couple bomb threats come in and you don't know if it's real or not, but, um, but it's, I, I enjoyed it, man. I love being on that. And at that point, everybody coming through the gate, even like the, the truckers delivering supplies and everybody come through there, everybody was just all about America at that point. Everybody was, you know, Patriot, Patriot, uh, patriotism was flowing. Everybody's like, go give them hell boys and words of encouragement and support. And, 
that was that was pretty neat. It didn't last about six months, but that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, it's definitely. Um, everyone wishes they can go back to, you know, wish never nine eleven didn't happen, but nine twelve was a big thing. Like it the was. day after, you just know, that so. a, the, the unity of the country, yep. and we all had one common uh, enemy, but it also just put us, us all together. Like everybody was supporting of each other and understanding like there's evil out there. Like we we need to you know have each other's back and. It was okay to be compassionate no matter which way you voted. It was okay to be supportive no matter which way you voted. Like, right. I miss those days. Yeah, for sure. Um, so with 9-11, you said even the security posture kind of tightened up at Camp Lejeune. That was really your your first experience, you know, searching for the unknown. You know, the thing everybody fears is, you know, bombs or whatever it is, materials. Um, how much longer were you on Lejeune and where, where did you go next? With your canine uh, I had uh, that was September, and I already had orders to go to Lackland Air Force Base to be a, a trainer down there. So I left. Uh, I left Camp Lejeune on uh, Valentine's Day of two thousand and three, uh, and went down to San Antonio, Texas. Okay, and then just a few months later, you know, the big invasion pushed off. So basically, like September, I, I left on February fourteenth, and then February fifteenth, the stop loss happened, and nobody, nobody went anywhere. Uh, and they started just recalling everybody. Like that's when, you know, that's when everything happened. But, uh, you know, I just executed orders like I was told to. You went down to, to Lackland Air Force Base. Yep. So your time at Lackland, so you said uh, you're going down there for a trainer. Was the uh, majority of the orders then just to go straight to DTS and then they'll pull you over to be a handless course instructor? That was kind of the general right. scheme was, you, you're, you know, on your three-year tour, you do two years in DTS and one year as a handler's course instructor. Right. Cool. Um, for, for that time, especially when the, the big start of the war, I mean, how, how much did you see any kind of changes from your time being there at Handler's Course and then during that stage, maybe like the next year, your whole tour? How it so the big thing was, you know, again, kind of pulling back, looking big picture is when you started deploying Marines, uh, our service members. It didn't take long to to understand that the new threat was going to be IEDs. You know, IEDs right. end up being the the number one threat to coalition forces. Um, you know, the the invasion, the initial invasion to Iraq, it, it went so quick. But then, the Iraqi army, the Iraqi police, everybody was they weren't given a purpose. Right. That's why that's when you see the the insurgency kind of yep. come about. So you didn't really see the IED tactics a whole lot in the beginning, but then it it quickly developed. And just like we've done since World War II as dog handlers, as a canine program, you adjust your capabilities to meet the threat you're currently facing. Sure. So where it was World War II and we wanted, you know, more sentry dogs and scout dogs. And in Korea, they wanted uh, sentry dogs, or, or scout dogs to go out in front and lead patrols. Vietnam, they developed a few new capabilities, including the tracker. Um, so for us, it was IEDs. That was the number one threat. So being down at Lackland, uh, I had the opportunity as a trainer uh, just pushing through green dogs, you start developing a little bit of reputation. Like in canine, like your, your reputation precedes yourself. Like you, you got to put in the work, like you can't fake it. You can't, you can't tell people who you are. Like other people will tell you people who you are because it's such a small program. Exactly. So, uh, knowing that the, there was a new threat starting to arise over in Iraq and Afghanistan, they started developing new capabilities and that was the specialized search dog program. They also brought back the combat tracker dog program from Vietnam. With those two uh, in, in in particular, I remember Bill Childers sent out an email to all the uh, kennel masters as well as the the Lackland staff, and just saying, "Hey, these are some uh, immediate needs to be need to be filled. 
they kind of gave us a brief about what the new programs are going to be involved. And uh, the the specialized search dog program really appealed to me. I was like, I want to I want to do that. Given the chance, like I want to go be an SSD handler and uh, go do my part, look for IEDs. Like that that just appealed to me. Um, in which I ended up going through that uh, the Israeli uh, program from Lackland. Um, before I did that, though, I, they Lackland Air Force Base started developing their own specialized search dog program. It's all kind of happened about the same time. So they started looking at different uh, methods and looking at different countries. You already had an off-leash capability. Uh, the Army went uh, to England and really started kind of piggybacking off of them and learning their uh, TTPs for uh, off-leash work. And then the Marine Corps uh, looked to the Israelis. So between those two programs, starting to get some information filtered back, and then Lackland's going to develop their own. Uh, they picked one Marine, one Air Force, one Army, and they hired three contractors uh, who had been prior military working dog handlers to start the program. And I was the first Marine uh, instructor for the SSD program. That's awesome. And, and it was just based off of uh, performance of training green dogs and right. and kind of you know the reputation you developed. So I, I looked at it as a huge honor. Like I was like, and you don't really think of it at the time. It's just an opportunity, and I'm not yeah, I'm not going to turn it down. Like absolutely, I want to do this. And then looking back, like that was a that was a pretty incredible you know moment to be part of that initial uh, startup of an entire SSD program. Uh, and then I, I ran a couple of classes through, and then had my opportunity to go to Israel and, and work with them, and that's where I got paired with uh, with Luca. And I'll say the the Israelis were were top notch, man. Like they, I mean they they fight terrorism every day in their backyard, and um, they were absolutely incredible at adapting their TTPs on the fly and they stay current, they stay, stay relevant because they have to. And so learning from them was an incredible benefit for, uh, for the Marine Corps. Yeah. That's amazing. Like keyword, you said like, um, that they, they have to adapt on the fly cause they're fighting in their backyard. They're Absolutely. constantly under threat and they continue to do so to this day. Um, so with, I want to say by the time this one gets released, we'll have a couple other SSD handlers on some early ones and some later. Um, but if you don't mind, because I want, I do want to talk about the Israeli the OCAS yeah. SSD for sure. Um, kind of explain what the purpose of the SSD or what that skill set was coming to and why it was needed, and then, and then we'll then you can dive into like OCATs and, and okay. what uh what exactly like you loved about it and how it differentiated from others. Absolutely. Um, so like I said, with the with a rising threat of uh, improvised explosive devices, uh, developing the specialized search dog program was a means to have standoff distance. It it went from a law enforcement mission, and this was our official transition to being more combat oriented. Uh, to do that, you're looking at going on patrols, and the general concept was to have a dog that could go out on front of the patrols, but be off leash because of the nature of what you're looking for. It also allows the handler to maintain, you know, they can keep their hands on their weapon, they can keep situational awareness. They can direct their dog where they need to into dangerous areas. But the most important part is having that standoff diff- distance. Like there's no, it doesn't mean no good to, to find an, uh, an explosive device when I'm attached to a six foot leash. Right. Um, and again, this is not secret service missions in the States that I was doing, like where it's just more of a security sweep. Like I'm going into where there's known threats. I'm going into where, you know, there's a threat out there. Uh, and it's a chess game of trying to figure out uh, and, and one of the best 
one of the best tools we had as dog handlers was route selection. But sometimes your your mission was to clear the route. So when you have to do those type of missions, like I want to have standoff distance where I can keep my eye on everything. And you also go through this process of uh, you can't search all of Iraq. You can't search all of Afghanistan. So we did a really good job of handler development of proper utilization of the military working dog. Like right. what makes sense to search? Like what always using your wind to your advantage, but what productive areas make sense to you to search? And that's when you start talking about the Winthrop theory and thinking like a terrorist and like that really started developing just the, the critical thinking skills of our handlers. But the capability of the specialized search dogs, like they, they prove themselves time and time again overseas. Um, you're still searching your roadways, your open areas, your buildings, your vehicles. Uh, we had the opportunity, uh, the the capability of putting radios on our back, so you could send them at great distances and be able to, you know, communicate to the dog. Now, in training, I maintain that capability. I, w- I would push my dog four or five hundred yards, no problem. And operationally, when I needed her to go. 20, 30 yards, because I want to maintain, you know, I want to know what she's like, what she's searching. I want to know if there's any threats right around the corner, if there's wild dogs, a firefight breaks out. Like at some point, it doesn't do me any good to search something 100 yards away. But yep. just like training, you, I want to far ex- exceed what I'm expected to do in combat. Um, that was an incredible capability to have. Now, for me, I didn't use the radios a whole lot except for uh, nighttime missions when we went on killer capture missions. That's when you're going in at night and you're, you're, you you land at like, you know, 10 o'clock at night. They drop you off. You go hit a target, take care of business. They pick you up somewhere else at you know, three or four in the morning. Right. Um, those moments I did use it because it, it still allowed me to have that off-leash control. And I could talk to her through radio and you could barely hear me talking if I was standing two feet from you. Right. I had a, a infrared chem light on her back, but just to be able to have that uh, capability at nighttime, maintain operational security clearing our route up to a target, searching our breach point, pulling it all back and going and hitting it and taking it down. Like it, you couldn't beat that type of a, yeah. a capability. Yeah. The, like the capability, like I think like operation, like you're not giving away your position at all. Yeah. You know, when you have that radio capability. Correct. Well, real quick, I want to say about the, the SSD program. One thing that, and I, I've worked with so many just incredible Marines, like throughout my career, like just, just guys who want to go get in a fight, Marines who want to go get in a fight. Um, but especially in those early days, like if you volunteer for SSD, like we didn't have a stateside mission. Like those young guys that, that you know, at this point I was like 24, 25, but there's guys who are in my situation who are 20 years old volunteering for the SSD program. I got a lot of respect for those guys. Sure, absolutely. Like if you're going in saying like, dude, I want to do this job, knowing it just has a combat role and that's it, much respect for those guys. Like, and and some of those earlier earlier SSD handlers, you know, when you're still trying to develop a new program, you don't get it right right off the bat. You got to learn from experience. You got to learn from AARs and real life deployments. Um, and so we we did that. So for those guys to to say, dude, I I'll roger it up. I got it, dude. I want to go be part of this new program. Nothing but respect for those guys. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and definitely had a an earlier um, SSD handler that handled this we handled the same dog so i had to on those last deployment and andre hill uh he volunteered right out of you know lackland you know like i think it was uh he said roteberry came down and gave a brief and just instantly knew he was like yeah, that's what i want to do like straight up and then at that point you know it was like 2006 2007 so like i said like knowing exactly what this capability is for for no other reason it's not to go over and play with the dog and all that stuff and 
you know, take good pictures on your, your, uh, <laughs> or what is it? Um, the old film, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, sorry, I can't even say what it is. It's like your little, uh, instant develop film yeah, and stuff, yeah. you know, it's not like that cause we don't have Instagram back then, but yeah, it's a definite definitive mission and you know, they knew exactly what they're getting themselves into, Absolutely. especially in that time. Um, and even like 06, 07, it's like the second portion of the invasion of Iraq. Like how you said, like the insurgency is now coming in full force. Um, yeah, so that's, you know, hundred percent it was needed. And I feel like, uh, it definitely maintained itself for the rest of the years. Uh, with, so with, the taking the switch from like Lackland to Israel, you know, how was that for you? Yep. Uh, first, I like to say Hill is a solid dude. Big fan of his. He actually yeah. replaced me on a deployment oh, yeah. to Iraq after that. Yeah. 100%. Solid, yeah. solid dude. Big fan of his. Um, so going over to the Israelis, like I, you're talking about uh, in DOD, we had just started this program. Over there, they've been established. You're talking about you're going into a program that's been established, battle-tested. So going over to... Uh, to OKS, work with OKS, like you're going into a well-established program. In DOD, we're just getting started. We're trying to do the right thing by learn from the ones who have been battle-tested. And, you know, they were top-notch at what they were doing, and they really created a successful program and uh, had lessons learned. And, and everything that you need to be successful, they'd already gone through those growing pains. Yep. So to learn from them, invaluable, man. Like, they, they faced um, – Threats of suicide bombers coming across, so they want to have uh, they they th face threats of car v, v bids coming into uh, Israel. Every type of IED threat, explosives, rocket attacks, like they had every kind of threat you can imagine. Um, but time and time again, they needed the means for the off leash capability. Um, even if it was going on raids uh, into Palestine to you know to you know take out a terrorist, like they. They needed to have the standoff distance, much like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think some of the stuff that they did, if I had to like kind of looking back on it, and some of the blended uh, processes we developed that came out of came out of it, is almost everything they did was high risk. A lot of the techniques we learned over there were very high risk, um, which you have to have. But in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of times it's it wasn't a high risk mission per se. Yeah, uh, you have to as a dog handler, you had to apply the intel you're given. You're looking at the history of the area you're going into. Uh, the, the obviously the human intelligence, ground intelligence was it was key in all this. The mission brief you're getting, but you had to decide: is this a high risk mission or a low risk? And that changes how I ran my dog. And sometimes it would change within one mission. But everything I learned on the Israeli side was all high risk, which was incredible. But we just needed to add the low risk piece of it. Like at some point, it's just a routine patrol, but I still need that capability out front. Right. Where they're not doing routine patrols. It's a very targeted reason why they're using their dog. Um, so to have that piece was incredible. We just had to add the softer piece of, dude, sometimes it's not going to hit a building. It's sometimes it is just a routine patrol, but I'm going to have 12 dudes behind me. I might as well have my capability out front. So we had to we had to kind of blend those two worlds, and that's what we did, and that's what made uh, our program absolutely successful over there in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, that's awesome. Just um, you're bringing in a totally different perspective that uh, the community didn't have at that point yet. I mean, they're going to get it with constant rotations and experience and stuff, and but uh, yeah, to go and pick to learn from the best, you know, the people that have been 
you know, trying the stuff out true, uh, every day. Yeah. You can't beat that at all. Uh, so did you go to, uh, Israel after Lackland or was it part of like your, your time at Lackland? I, yeah, I had a very unique, uh, career in general, but it was, uh, it was at, at from Lackland. Me and Chris Knight went from Lackland. Um, big fan of his, you know, he's been a, been a friend of mine for years, but, but Knight and I were, we were coming up on our rotation time, but I think the Marine Corps, they don't always get it right, but they, they did right by us by not making us PCS just to leave our families. So we actually ended up going to Israel from Lackland and then come back and deploying to Iraq from Lackland, wow. which has never happened. Yeah. Didn't even uh, know that. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was, uh, and again, it was, it was more just taking care of the families. They didn't want us to, cause he was going to go, he ended up going to Lejeune. I am going to Pendleton, but we were going to deploy no matter what. So it was going to be, go to a brand new state, new duty station just for you to deploy. So they, um, yeah, I was, and I wanted that, both we wanted that deployment, like we right. were ready to go. So, so yeah, we went from, from Lackland to Israel. Uh, that's when we got assigned our dogs. Uh, we came back December 23rd of 2006. And uh, two months later, went to Lejeune to do some like basic workup stuff and then deployed to Iraq. So it was like, now, sixteen out of eighteen months gone, but it was uh, right. it was well worth it. We were we were hungry, man. Sure. Like we were ready to go. Yeah, I mean, your whole reason to to go to that program was to deploy Absolutely. and learn learn as much as you can, and then just know that you graduate, come back to the states, and two months later you're doing your your real workup. Absolutely, and you're bouncing, you're literally bouncing back out. Uh, so when you guys were going through Lejeune, uh, is that kind of where you had like a little mini validation with the, like maybe a, a deploying kennel master with you? Yeah. So again, just a not a normal deployment right. like the army uh they had a group of ssds that were based out of baghdad okay. uh, from the from the engineer ssd program right and that uh, if i'm not mistaken they had a quota for like 26 ssds and they didn't have enough to fulfill that so they started putting out the uh request for forces and the Marine Corps rogered up to send four guys, four Marine dog teams to go help supplement that so they could meet their mission. And me and Knight were the first two Marines to go help meet that need. So nice. we went to uh, to, Le, uh, to Lejeune first, um, and we had to go back through some basic qualifications. They put us on some good training packages, and uh, we had to, we had to buy our own. They didn't want to give us kits. We had to go buy our own flax out in town. Oh wow! It was a it was a, it's a mess. It was a mess, dude. To be honest <laughs> with you. I'm trying to be nice, but it was a mess. Yeah. And then, um, and then yeah, and then we deployed, and we went to we stopped by. Um, what's the big What's the big base in Iraq? Al Assad. Assad, yep. But we were only there for like two or three days, uh, just waiting for our next flight. And then we went to Baghdad to Camp Slayer, and that's when the engineer SSDs picked us up. And that's when we went into like our in-country, our in-theater validation for like a, a week or whatever, 10 days. And then we got, you know, put out to a, uh, whatever base they wanted to send us to, to, you know, for the remainder of the deployment. Right. And so, I mean, it sounds like it all happens very quick. Like Absolutely. you said, it was very fast. There's like almost no time to really process everything. Correct. But you guys were hungry, so Absolutely. it didn't matter. Like, hey, whatever I need to do next, uh, whatever the needs are, you guys are going to do it. Uh, when you get down to... And so, like, you guys filled that fulfillment. You guys needed two spots. The Marine Corps filled it in with you guys, two SSDs, and you get the country. Not to, you know, toot your own horn. The Marines are the best, but in your honest opinion, how could you tell, I mean, what stood, you know, you and, like, Luca, your SSD versus, like, the other SSDs? Was it pretty, like, far-fetched? I mean, good teams, but 
Was there a big stif- like difference? I would I would say uh, the engineer SSDs had a really good program. Like I was, and some of those guys were my students. Like a year prior, before you know, uh, uh, before I went to Israel, so I saw them down there, and then they got additional training at Fort Leonard Wood. Um, very capable, and I, and I love their brotherhood they had, and and the capabilities they brought to the fight. And uh, I'm still good friends with a lot of those guys today. And I, um, but of course in K9 you're gonna have a little competition yeah, style. You gonna have course. to, yeah. You got a little, you got a little something there. So uh, they didn't have the radio capabilities we had, right? And so, and Luca was particularly good on radios and control at a distance and very manageable, incredible at searching. So she was, she definitely stood out, man. Like she was. Uh, she was something special, man. Like I, I, I've handled hundreds of dogs from Lackland and going on by trips to Germany, Czech Republic, Holland, all those places, and there was truly something special about Luca. Like she, not just the trainability and intelligence, um, she had the right mixture of drives of just being really good at her job and drivey enough, but also methodical when she was searching. It wasn't just you know run to run. It was like searching her way out and. Um, which also made it very easy to anticipate when I need to give her direction and give her some reinforcement. And uh, we, we definitely, we definitely looked a little different than most dog teams, like with just because of her capabilities. And then, you know, you got a, you know, this Shep and Mal and then a giant six foot Marine, you know, with a, with a piece together kit. Yeah. You're definitely gonna stand out. Uh, So speaking on Luca and then, you know, your prior experience as being like one of the first SSD instructors for Lackland, and then you get the OCATS experience. Um, what would you say the biggest difference is just knowing how you guys ran the course or the first iterations and then how the OCATS course was? How do you feel that was? I th- I think that the – so for all, when we first got selected, it was because we could train dogs and because of work ethic, because of proven performance. Um I think you look back at like lessons learned, like at that point, there was really nobody in the States that was doing that type of off-leash work. With that being said, like there was no school to send us to. There was no like additional. So we had to figure it out for ourselves. Like we were troubleshooting just that off-leash piece and we got the, we got the off-leash piece down, but we were, we weren't as near as advanced as OCATS was when it came to the control piece and the directional piece. Some dogs would adapt to it. Some dogs wouldn't. We had to, just coming up with various ways and methods to, to make mission. Um, but it wasn't like I was, I wasn't like, I didn't go to a training course to learn off leash shit. I was just, right. it was because we knew how to train dogs. We understand training concepts. We understand principles of conditioning. And we started developing different ways to, uh, to have that control off leash. And I think one of the biggest additions down there was Paul Bunker when, uh, he was a you know British military. He had that off leash background, and he got to us pretty early on in the process, and so he was able to provide us some insight. So I was probably like our our best train the trainer, OJT, while we're while we're actually getting ready to run through courses, and having him there to pick his brain was absolutely incredible. Just to uh, just to make sure we're on the right steps. For example, a real basic example. In uh, Israel, we used the bird launchers to get the dogs out, and uh, uh, I never would have thought of that. I didn't have that. I didn't know those things existed. Like we just that wasn't my capability. It wasn't my world. Um, but they were very good at the way that the system they had, had developed in Israel, and 
I'm a big fan of that. And I took that with me from that point on. And that's part of what you do as a dog trainer. Like right. you don't know what you don't know, but if you're staying innovative enough and you're, you're creative and you understand basic training concepts and how to connect the dots. And then you see something worth taking, you take that and you put it in your repertoire and then that kind of, and you put your own spin on it. And that's what I did. I just yeah. didn't have that exposure until I went to Israel. Um, and I think that's what made me hungry, man. Like, um, I, you know, when I went over to Iraq and during the surge in 2007, I mean, 2007 was the deadliest year in Iraq. But I had students that were, I was training that were deploying uh, and I hadn't deployed yet. And that bothered me. Right. Like, I, I can't help it. Just like any dude right now. Like, I had to deal with the Marines and the MEF my second go around. Like, they just, uh, I don't know, you can't help when you came in the Marine Corps. You can't help, like, global events. You just, Exactly. You just do what you can do when it's your your number gets called. You go out there and crush it. And like, and so my number hadn't been called yet, and that bothered me, man. Yep. Like that was like, uh, that drove me more than anything. Just to that that's why I didn't bother me being home for two months just to go back out again and and deploy. Um, so yeah, that was that was a driving factor for me, man. And I was always had the skill set and the 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 motivation. I was able to. I I think I really developed a keen sense of. I could get the potential out of you, like whatever that was. Like if that was well above the standard, I'll get you there. And if it's just over the standard, I, I'll get you. But I can't, I can't train what's not there. But whatever potential you have in you to be a dog handler, I will get every bit of that out of you. Um, but at the same time, I, I was missing that key piece of deployment experience as a when I was a young guy, and I didn't, I didn't have that. Yep. And that drove me, that drove me fucking nuts, dude. Like to just my number wasn't called. There wasn't sure. an opportunity presented. And as soon as it was, I jumped on it. Yep. No, I agree. No, and it's kind of like a, a staple within the community anyways, you know, like yeah. we're even towards kind of like the end or now this last like six years of stuff deployments dialed down and some, some of those hungry Marines, like you say, yeah. they're after it and they hear this, these stories of yeah. like the prior, like they're, they're leg legends, they're heroes. And in the end, like they feel crushed because yeah. they don't, they're not getting a chance. Now they're progressing into trainers and then, yeah. you know, leaders and then, but they haven't got, they don't feel like they've really put that like their number hasn't been called, you know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's 100%. just the way it is. Um, I, I had those conversations many yeah. times and I, cause I felt it. I knew what they were going through yep. and it crushed me that they felt that way, but you can't, I mean, deployments were dwindling down at that point, 2000, you know, 16, 17, 18, whatever, like I, you know, I, I felt for them, but I, I did everything I could just like, dude, you, you can't help. Like yeah. that's not, that's, that's out of your control, man. You yep. can't help. There's no other word diplomas. You can't help. Like, so I, I, but I understood what they were going through because I went through it and it was yeah. very frustrating for me at the time. Sure. Yeah. And same, same thing, like, uh, working up through like even my, my career with, uh, you know, I got one deployment as an SSD handler. You know, I never got the, you know, deploy as a patrol dog handler or anything like that. And then getting down to, you know, YPG where you're still, like, I always say it, like I walk in the wake of some pretty, you know, phenomenal Marines and, and just general dog handlers. And you always feel like, man, did, do I have what it takes? Or it's like, did I do enough and everything like that? And sometimes you feel it's like, yeah, I didn't do enough. But then some some other handlers will just kill to what to do what you have done, Absolutely. you know, to be in your your shoes. And so in the end, it's like, I think it's where where you make of it. And I think what we do really well is like we're hungry, you know, marine dog handlers, and then we do they do exactly what we ask them to, especially in your the kennel master role and the chief trainer role. I just want you to train, be ready, learn your dog. Don't worry about anything else. I'll take care of it. I need you to do what the Marine Corps asks of you is to train your dog, be ready when we need you. And that's it. And I think there's, I think there's something that 
is healthy about that. Like you right. should want to, otherwise, what are you doing? Like if exactly. you're, if it doesn't bother you that you're not getting a chance to deploy, like, uh, or deploy as much as you want to, like there, you, there's something there. I think that's okay. Yeah. But just as long as it doesn't control things, like does it like, like, just still do your job, go out and crush it, you know, do what you can do and, and just, just go out there and be successful where the Marine Corps puts you and never turn down an opportunity. Yeah. But understand that there's a lot of stuff just outside of your control. And you, you, if you don't have the opportunity, it's not your fault, but just be ready when your numbers, that's all you can yeah. do. That's it. Yeah. And then there's, there's some Marines that, that ask for it so much just to get their one deployment on. There's some Marines that are just fortunate and they answered the call every time and they did back to back deployments, you know, and yeah. there's those, there's that, there's one far end of the spectrum. There's this part, and then there's that part of the spectrum as well. The, yeah, well, and there's there's probably more of a negative than the other side right. of, of just uh, I ran into a couple of war babies where they would deploy one time, and then they would act like they were God's gift to men, yep. and and inadvertently or inadvertently like rub it in the the young marine. This is after I had a couple of deployments, but that would drive me nuts. Like yeah, have sure. some have some humility to you, man. Like. If you get a chance to deploy and you're not using your lessons learned and your experiences just to better those around you, I want my Marines to be better trained than I ever was. If that's right. not your mentality, if you're not just using what you were able to do overseas to make those guys better, I, I don't want you. I don't yeah. want you to be around here. I don't want you to come tell war stories. I don't want you to come and rub it in their face that you did this and that. And then sometimes you find out it's not necessarily true. And all this, I just, I just, I don't like people that aren't don't have like some some humility to them when they get a chance to go do things. And I'll give you. An example, uh, Billy Sutra. Uh, Billy Sutra's a he's a man beast. That dude's awesome, man. Yeah. I, big fan of his. I, I knew him from K nine school. We were stationed together. We deployed to Iraq, deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, he's actually been to my family's house down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Like just incredible dude. He's still in doing his thing. Um, and he received the Navy Cross for actions he performed in Afghanistan. Uh, as a dog handler attached to Marsock at the time. That is the most humble individual that you'll ever meet. Right. Uh, he's just, you would never know. He's so unassuming. And then you read his award site, right, which he brought it to me. He brought it, Colonel Bristol wrote the thing up, and he's like, man, and he didn't want to tell me. He just like, can you take a look at this? And reading the witness statements in Afghanistan of what he did like a couple nights before, incredible yep. to know what this Marine did. In those situations, and you would never know to this day if you come and met him, like he's just a the nicest, most humble dude you can meet, but he's gonna grind and he's a guy you want in your fighting hole with you. But he I, I can respect that comfort. Juan Rodriguez is another one. Um, he's the one who saved Luca's life. Like he was he's very unassuming, he's a hard worker, he did great for me in Afghanistan. We're over there in two thousand ten. Humble dude. Just but He's a guy who's going to grind. He's going to put in the work. He's going to do the right thing for the right reason. He's very capable in combat, but he's not going to gloat and, and tell you about it. Dude, those are the kind of guys that all day long, man, I'd, yeah. I'd make a platoon out of those fellows. Yeah, just hearing the names around in the program and then hearing their stories as well. It's like it's exactly what uh, what you want as a dog handler and what you want other you know other Marines to to hear about and read about. Especially Sutra, I've heard a lot of good things. Um, about that, and even like Nieto uh, would read a citation at YPG for our deployment course, you know. And then there was a time and point where you had some one map handlers and they didn't even know just reading it, you know, they didn't know what it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, man. And he actually, you know, made a good point. It's like, that's pretty pathetic, you know, like uh, if you don't take the time to like really look into the history and stuff. And that's part, speaks partly on the humility, you know, he's not boasting about it. Absolutely. Not a lot of people know about that situation. 
but we definitely continued it because it's a pretty phenomenal example of uh, you're there to provide a capability, but in the end, like you're just another Marine on the ground to left and right, and you need to do everything you need to do to get the, the day over with and go back. And I think K-9 is such a small community, man. Like, like people are going to tell your stories. I know I've told Billy Suter's story more than he's told his story. Like, I love bragging on my dudes. Like, all the guys I work with at, you know, One Meth, I did seven years at One Meth. I could sit here and lame dozens of dudes and just – and I've talked about them constantly, and, and, and that's what I'm supposed to do because my guys and – and I only talked, you know, they they rightfully deserve praise because they crushed it for me. Right. Uh, when I got a chance to work with them, deploy with them, like, love shining a light on those guys. But it's such a small community, like, you don't have to tell your story. People are going to tell it, good, bad, ugly. Mm-hmm. Like, people are going to tell it, and your reputation is going to, you know, beat you to your kennels, beat you to your next duty station. And uh, I'm okay with that, you know. I'm okay with what, you know, you should be okay with what your legacy is based off of your performance. Like, proof's in the pudding. It's not about what you say. It's about... How do you perform? And, dude, I've worked with some incredible dudes over the years, like just guys and girls. Um, and, and I, I mean, there's not – I mean, Marine Corps is special for sure. Uh, but it's literally like you, we work with a lot. I mean, there's uh, over 95% I would give recommendations to. Like literally, like there's just a lot of incredible individuals out there, man. Yeah. Very humbling just to be around that kind of, of crowd of performers and, and warriors and dudes that are – want to go after and get it. And you still got to deal with your couple that are, um, you know, just go the other way, but right. I'd rather focus on the guys who are crushing it for sure. us, you know, but no, I definitely agree. It's uh, it's definitely unique and what makes the Marines a little different sometimes. Absolutely. But, um, so if we backpedal to your time, like you said, uh, you know, really you felt like you were missing a piece of that pie, you know, or just in general, like you're training guys to deploy and they're deploying and, and you'd, Hadn't had that chance yet, but your number was called. So you went to went to Israel, you got paired up with Luca, and then now you're on in Iraq for your first deployment. And then after a long workup and long training with Luca, um, how do you feel like you were prepared for like everything you saw then on the, that first deployment? Do you I was feel ready. like you were ready for it? I was ready. I yeah. was very comfortable, very confident. I was ready. And I wanted I wanted it all. Like I wanted to be in the worst area I could go to. Like, I just wanted it all. Like, at that point, it was just – I was so confident in Luca's capabilities and what we brought to the fight. Like, I just – I was ready. Um, and for me, I, when I first got off uh, – when we first landed, the first guy who met us was Corey Weens. He was a specialized search dog handler uh, with the engineers. And I'd actually met him at, at Lackland Air Force Base a year prior when he was coming through school. And – that dude was awesome. He was just a uh, – he had a great personality. He was he had that hunger. He was born out in Oregon, and uh, his dad was actually – or his granddad was actually a, a canine handler in Korea. Um, but, yeah, he was, he, was a, he was a great young man and, and always smiling like he had an infectious smile. So he, <laughs> he's the one that picked us up and, and got us shown around. That was just uh, – got us you know, kind of squared away, and, and we started training. We started training together, and we started getting our dogs on local odors and – uh, kind of getting everything, uh, getting the dogs, make sure they're ready, make sure they've adjusted from the flight and to the heat and get them acclimated and, and as you do. Uh, and then the mission assignment started coming down, and I went down to uh, Fob Falcon. And the mission down there was uh, three days later they were kicking off into a uh, – it was like a battalion-wide uh, clearing operation uh, going into uh, – called Operation Marn Torch. 
and it was going uh, parallel to the Tigris River. Uh, there had been a that particular area was uh, hadn't been any military U.S. military in there in about nine months. Baghdad was getting a lot of uh, V bids, vehicle-borne IEDs, car bombs, and rocket attacks. And so our overall mission was to go down there and clear the area out of insurgents and then also establish uh, new patrol bases so we can uh, kind of hold the area and, and eliminate the you know enemy movement. And that happened three days after I showed up to Fob Falcon. So I show up, and yeah, you know, and I went through just everything like you're – you, you do, like I went through a capabilities limitations brief. I demoed my dog's capabilities, and they were going to send me another dog handler. And they sent me a Corey and Cooper, which is absolutely incredible. You know, I said I couldn't ask for a better dog team at that point. And and so we go and start pairing up with our uh, our company, and then down to the platoons, and we go out on this mission. And it's a, uh, I mean, it's Bradleys and Abram tanks and fixed wing and rotor wing. It's a large scale clearing operation, and the first thing that we searched on that mission was a um, horse stables and a pool house that belonged to Saddam Hussein's sons right on the Tigris River, and we turned that into a patrol base. It was our first patrol base we established on this uh, clearing operation, and then from that point on, you just kind of clear further south methodically going house to house, uh, clearing the routes and then holding blocking positions, and sometimes you just go like 500 yards a day, and then we'd firm up in a compound and just take it over, and then uh, the next, you know, the next morning push down a little bit. That's is in the, you know, you're starting to get pretty hot, so just to avoid heat casualties, we would work usually early, early mornings. You start taking a break in the heat of the day at a compound, just pull security, and then start going back out in late afternoons into the evening. Um, at the same time, you're starting to develop some human intelligence through some of the locals. You got to build their trust up. It's the whole process we're doing. And uh, Corey and I uh, were uh, were it didn't take us long to start building the trust of the the guys we're supporting, and they started letting us get out front with our dogs and starting letting us uh, kind of do our job more and more as we went through this. And on day three, uh, Luca had her first IED find in that area, and it was on a in a choke point. So uh, at this point, the mission was to clear the route, so there was no, like, route selection. Like, our job was to clear the route so we could hold it and establish some blocking positions. And uh, the third choke point we searched that day uh, had an IED in there. And what they do is they had uh, EOD put a water charge on it. At this point, you're dealing with mostly uh, commercial explosives. There wasn't a whole lot of homemade explosives at that point, HME. They just started seeing it uh, that year in 2007. And this happened to be homemade explosives, and it was buried – uh, they recommend, they said about probably 18 inches, but it was 30 pounds of it. And that, when that water charge went off, the whole thing detonated. Now everybody was at a safe distance, but, uh, I mean, you see the crater it, it, uh, caused was about five foot deep, about 12 foot wide. Yeah. And that was the area we were about to walk through, you know? So that moment of validation for all the work we had done, um, all the, you know, training Marines, but wanting my turn and, and, everything that me and Luca went through and all the extra reps Luca and I did and all the walking behind, uh, you're doing extra just rapport walks and stuff and just really fine tuning our skills of blank searching and getting our extra directional controls down. And we do put, we put a lot of work in. We also put a lot of extra work in. Dude, that was a lot. That was a very validating moment to, sure. for her right. to find an IED. Um, and then uh, we, at that point, like we were, 
we were good. Like at that point, they they wanted K nine on every one of the patrols that went out. It was me or Corey. One of us would go out. We started getting mortared from uh, the north into Patrol Base Murray. And the general thought process at that time is, you're not. Uh, they're not bringing mortars out and launching them at us. There's a cache out there. They would dig it up, launch a mortar, and take off. And that was the general TTP. And um, so they let me and Corey, at this point, both of us have been successful finding IEDs, weapons caches. And they let me and Corey help plan the mission about how to best utilize the dogs for this mission. So he was with a squad, and I was with a squad, and we go out and uh, establish where a, a general poo site would be, the Port of Origin. And uh, we're able to sweep through this area, and Corey up there finding the cache of mortar rounds. Like, it's awesome. That was incredible, man. Uh, just a, a huge day of just you, – you go out there and do what you're supposed to. You're making a good name for K-9. Like, you can go on a deployment and not find anything. That don't mean it's a bad deployment. I was just in a shitty area, and there's nothing particularly fun about being that close to an ID, but it's just uh, – I also had the mindset if it's I, – I, I'll be there. I don't mind. I'll be – I'll. I'm okay with that. Like, I just wanted to, this is my time. Like, I want to go out there and, you know, get dirty. So, uh, and we did, man. We did We did a lot of good work out there. Sometimes you go on two or three patrols a day, like, just nonstop, like, going from uh, platoon to platoon within a company just to stay active and stay out there. And, and, and you start developing the mindset of, well, what if something happens and I'm not there, but I had the opportunity to be? And I'll still yeah. take care of the dog and make sure she – me and Corey had a good balance, but we fucking grinded, dude. We – we had a we had a uh, we had a busy work schedule out there, just trying to do what we could do as dog handlers. And then, um, and the way it works with on the conventional side is, you know, once your your job kind of is done, they would launch us to another area because um, there was a lot of clearing operations. Two thousand seven was the, was the search. There was a lot of different clearing operations, so I ended up going to uh, another one called Operation uh, Marn Avalanche. <clears throat> on our last patrol, like it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be Corey's. Uh, it was it was Corey's last patrol with me before he went back to uh, his own fob, um, Cal Su, and uh, literally his last one. And then he goes out, and there's a, a house. There's no particular intelligence on it. Just one of the we've cleared a thousand of them, and uh, he's making an approach as a commandant IED, and uh, it killed Corey and Cooper and a security guy named Salazar and wounded six others, and. Um, that was tough, man. That 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 day changed your life. Like that yeah. was a guy that you know I was in charge. I was I was responsible for his life. Like I was uh, out of everything you do, like you're supposed to bring your dudes home. Yeah. And I didn't do that, and I didn't bring Corey home. And me and Corey were living in a tent on Five Falcon together, and because we had dogs, we we're the only two in that tent. Um. And so I had to go back to that that tent where all his stuff is and had to help pack it up over the next few days. I had to load his body in a body bag and to uh, put it in a helicopter after, after he was killed, like uh, stuff that just never leave you. But it's, you know, for all the good things I did in my 20 years Marine Corps career, like uh, I, there was two deployments that I didn't bring everybody home. And that's, that stuff will, for me personally, like overrides everything else. So, and I, I've gotten to a point of, you know, I, I'll talk about it a little bit, just kind of mental health for, for Marines and dog hunters getting out, but, um, you know, still work in progress, but I, I but that, that'll never leave me. That's always going to be part of me and part of my legacy. I, I didn't bring Max Donahue home and I didn't bring Corey Weens home. Um, 
And I, and it after that happened, after Corey was killed, um, it it just made me double down, man. Like I was, I was, uh, I wanted to do, I wanted to do everything, man. I I didn't say I'm not saying I had like a death wish or anything, but. I became obsessed with finding IEDs. I became obsessed with just being there instead of not being there because Corey went out on this last one and I didn't go. And um, yeah, it drove it. It drove me just. To, I mean, I would. I actually ended up going to Five Kalsu where he was supposed to go back to and fulfilling in that mission because Martin Torch started slowing down. It was done. Now it's just sustaining ops, and so I started going on Martin Avalanche, and that was all just killer capture mission. I was very targeted. Everything was Hilo. It was, I think it was the 501st at that time called Parachute Infantry Regiment. And uh, 501st, 505th, uh, and we just did uh, – it was just every couple nights you just go out and go find a high-value individual. And I would go from one company to another, man. I would just – I would go do a rehearsal. I'd go out. I'd go to the next company, do a rehearsal, and go out. And um, I think I lost like – it was like 18 or 19 pounds and – uh, three weeks and I saw Chris Knight when we finally had that memorial uh, for Corey and he was worried about me like I didn't look the same like I I I just I didn't I didn't look like I did when me and him left each other and at that point I didn't know I just I was just grinding man I just want to go out and do everything I could and um, also at that point my uh, supporting different different units over there my my wife was pregnant and uh, our daughter was gonna be born and in September towards the end of our deployment. So fast forward this a little bit and the army, they was going to, they, they, they're pretty uh, good about like letting you go home for that kind of stuff if they can. And they were going to have it coordinated where I could go home and just kind of shorten my deployment by like three weeks uh, just to be home for, I guess a month, it was right at a month. And uh, I turned it down. I didn't want to, I didn't feel like I deserved to go home. Like Corey didn't go home. So, right. um, you know, miss my daughter's birth just to stay over and, and, and keep doing. And I don't necessarily say I regret it, but I was definitely in a different mind state back then. And I didn't tell my wife that until like 2015 or something, like almost eight years later. Um, but it was, that's the kind of the mindset I got into was just, I became obsessed with going out and doing everything I could regardless of what happened. I didn't, I didn't really care if I made it home or not, but, right. um, it's nothing easy about losing a dude in, in combat, and especially when it's, it's just me and Corey. Like, and we we're very tight knit. Like, we talked about everything and family. And uh, man, that's you know, you're there with a the dude one day, and then next thing you know, put him in a helicopter. Like, that was that was tough, man. Yeah, yeah it's it sounds tough. Um, you know, I appreciate you sharing that portion of it. You know, and, and going in depth the way you did. Um, so, talking on your like you said, like you were kind of obsessed and you had like an overwhelming drive to kind of just get out there. Do you think half of it was kind of like, you know, to get back at those who did harm and got those guys? Or is it knowing that you could still potentially save somebody else? It was both. Both. At the time, they, they, they had this whole like hearts and minds campaign, like trying to win their hearts and minds. Uh, just, you know, they, they had like that terrorist math. Like if you kill one person, now you, you killed them, but you created three more terrorists or whatever. Um, and I, so at the beginning, it was more, I'm just going to do what I can to be on every patrol to go look for IEDs and caches. And that changed after Corey got killed. I didn't, I didn't, it just changed. It changed what your, your, what your, your, your mindset was going outside the wire. Um, and I was okay with that. Cool. Yeah. But, um, 
And that's kind of like uh, the realization like everyone has, you know, especially at that time of the war, you know, and then your generation as well. It's not just, you know, dog handlers, but everybody that out there suffered some sort of loss, you know, and, and I can only imagine it does change your perspective in a lot of things. And then with your lessons learned, you know, coming back and then taking it on to, you know, like future generations. And then, you know, you coming back, you were a sergeant at that point, right? Yeah, and then, you know, you picked up, obviously, retired out as a mass sergeant. So, I mean, you definitely, you got some leadership experience there as well. Um, and kind of, like, help, you know, through your experiences, help others that could potentially face that same same situation. You know? Well, I had, and I had that, um, and I and also this is before, like I said, I, I deployed out of Lackland. Um, so, I would go on to spend a total of seven years in the MEF. So, I just downloading all the operational experience and everything because I ended up going uh, back to Iraq uh, less than a year later and then less than a year later I went uh, after that when I went to Afghanistan and that was when I took those those 30 Marines so just to, to fast forward real quick on that to kind of drive your point home is um, it was the same situation dude it was now you're now you're in a platoon of uh, 60 70 Marines um, and we got tasked to take the first group of 30 over. Uh, they'd been deploying at 15 at a time. We had the first group of 30 uh, to go from one platoon since Vietnam. And the average age of my Marines was, I think I figured it out at one point, to be like 20, late 20, early 21, like that time frame. Um, I think out of the 30 of us, uh, four had deployed at that point, and that was it. And it was the same thing that I'd went through 10 years prior, like, of just hungry, uh, well-trained, like, they wanted it. They wanted to be in the fight. They wanted to go get theirs. They want to be just what Marines do, man. And um, at this time, I had a little different perspective as far as the, uh, like, obviously losing someone makes things very real. So you, you still, you train hard. You get ready to go over there. You're ready to whip it on. Uh, and you get in country, and I remember – um, I remember assigning my guys to different missions, to different units to go support. And there was there was a sense of like you're you're deciding these dudes' destiny all over again. And the and you know at this point three years earlier when I was in Iraq with Corey, it was just me and him. Now I'm assigning thirty dudes. The mindset at that point too was the last Marine dog hunter killed was Dustin Lee in Iraq in 2007. So we've been almost, we've been over three years. He was in March. So we've been over three years since a Marine dog had been killed. And I'm about to take 30 of them into Afghanistan during the surge, during the highest operational tempo. Um, and it, it's nothing I ever told the Marines. I mean, but me and Knuckles had those conversations. Like it was just, it was difficult to understand that um, I might not bring all 30 home. Uh, and I remember writing down, assigning guys to different patrols based off their capabilities, their skills. It doesn't take away from my job. I got a job to do, and I know my Marines. I know who's their different capabilities between them and their dog. And and that just, you know, between all of them are uh, capable, but then you're talking about between special forces and conventional and this and that. So you're kind of weighing it all down and making the best match possible as you do. Everybody's racked and stacked no matter what you do in the Marine Corps, uh, no matter how good you are. There's always going to be a number one, number two. And, but I remember like, like my hands shaking, dude, just knowing I'm like, I, I'm assigning these dudes destinies about where I'm putting them. 
based off the information I have and based off knowing my guys' capabilities. And, uh, dude, uh, that, that that group crushed it. I mean, it's just an incredible group of Marines, and they were they were um, they made me proud, man. I think at some point, just you're talking about leadership, it starts to as you get up in the ranks, it starts to be less and less about you and more and more about your Marines. And I started making that switch when I got to the MEF as a young staff sergeant. That that buildup and especially that 2010 deployment, like completely, that, that was it was all about my Marines. Like I wanted, like their success was my success. Like I wanted their failures, my failures. Like it was everything I could do was about them. Like I, you know, I had my time in the spotlight. Um, and I think anybody in a good leadership position, like that's that's the mentality. At some point, you got to use what you did and your successes, your failures, and help teach and train those guys beneath you. And it becomes about them. And that's what that 2010 deployment for me was all about. But also having the knowledge of they were in combat. Like there's there's uncertainty. There's, you know, it's a dangerous place. Like the odds are against as far as it had been over three years since the Marine dog had been killed. Like all that stuff went through my head. Um, and we spent the first half of our deployment in Helmet Province, spread all throughout from Modine and down to uh, the castle, like everything in between. Um Incredible job. And then in August, uh, uh, down in Safar Bazaar in Garmshire District, um, Max Donahue was killed. And I was out with those guys, like, for a week before this big push, um, going into Safar Bazaar and uh, went on a patrol with them and a couple patrols with them. And we played spades in downtime, and we're getting ready for another big clearing operation. And then uh, you had – I think we had – Seven or eight dog teams, because uh, it was a big one. We had guys from the south, guys from the north, seven or eight dog teams total. And uh, Max found an IED, and they immediately started receiving fire. And they had set up IEDs where they knew Marines would take fire. You know, Taliban was a little bit different fighter than Al-Qaeda was. And uh, and Max was a triple amputee. And uh, I went to his, his uh, – uh, the little hot field hospital ten at Dwyer, uh, me and Knuckles did, and um, you know senior Marines at Triple T is tough. And then we spent, and at that point he was, uh, he was brain dead. But everything his face and everything looked fine, like it was normal. But it, you know, obviously missing two legs in his in his arm. Um, but but he was the way he was proned out. Um, he's like Max, just you know, just laying there with us and uh, said a prayer, talked to him, and basically kind of. Even I know he wasn't with us, like I was just telling him about all the Marines and kind of giving an update about what the guys were doing just in case he could hear me. And you go through all kinds of crazy stuff in those situations. And um, uh, and then he, he got – we stayed until the point he got medevaced to Germany and he uh, he passed away. Um, you can't explain as much as you – and you don't want to harp on it either, but you can't really explain that until you lose a guy, like how real it becomes. And then – we got most of the guys back for a memorial for Max, and the next time you go on a mission is different. Instead of high fives, it's hugs, and I love you, brother. And because you don't know, you're you're not guaranteed to see that dude again. But you don't, you're not, you don't think you're invincible. But it comes very real when you bury one of your dudes, um, and you see that change in all of them. And it's something you never want those guys to experience. Um, but I'd gone through it with Corey, and now I'm here going through it again and watching these guys, and they're, you know, at this point again, 20, 21 years old, uh, at the memorial for one of their guys who was – and Max was one of the guys who deployed. He was an incredible asset to our platoon. 
and and um, he was uh, 22. And um, so I pulled him all aside and said, "Hey, fellas, like if you don't, if you're not ready mentally, don't, we're, don't go back outside the wire right now. It don't mean you have to never go outside, but just let's just make sure you, your your head's right, and then uh, and then we'll get you back in a fight. Like uh, like we got to be, we have an honest conversation about that. I'm not just gonna put dudes back out and uh, where they're not certain." Um, because that kind of stuff changes a person. Dude, without hesitation, everyone of them was like, let's, let's go do it. Let's go do it for Max. Like, without hesitation, dude. Like, I fucking love those guys. Like, they uh, – and they crushed it. We got to, we got to call to go to um, Kandahar, and the Army had five battalions doing a huge clearing operation in Kandahar. Um, and we – I took 22 bomb dogs out of 24 bomb dogs – uh, to Kandahar and we divvied up, did the same thing, had to pick who was going where, and I'm range crushed it. They did an incredible job, man. And and the fact of just losing a brother in arms, they went out and set an incredibly high standard for K9, made a good, great name for K9. Like we were making ripples all the way up to uh, the, entire, the General Petraeus, who was in in charge of all of Afghanistan at that point. Like um, I, I can't say enough of that that group of one meth dog handlers in that first first deployment of thirty dogs. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you guys, like you said, they were deploying previously at 15-man teams, you know, and then now this is the first 30, the big push. Um, and then from there, you guys really set the standard for the next ones because I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, for the MEF portion, like, they would rotate out, right? So that's like you guys were the one MEF. And then uh, Chuck Rotenberry and, right. and two MEF came in and replaced us. So it was him and Frank Ginn and Scott Sheridan, some just you know, great individuals. They came in and and – Real quick on that, like I, that was one of the, the that was one of those proud moments too. Is like at the end when you had the the two MF Marines come in, we spent like uh, you, know, you got like three weeks together, whatever. Right. We had developed uh, classes on like actual finds we had and current TTPs because even month one did not look like month seven. So here's exactly what we found and how we're finding it and the TTPs depending on what AO you're going to. Uh, we had uh, very uh, explosive setup for them, training lanes, like realistic training lanes based off of operational experience over the last six, seven months. We had uh, – uh, we supported recon a lot, and we had their medic come over and just give a good refresher um, and, and some just up-to-date TTPs for, like, medic training and where to keep your tourniquet and all that stuff. Like, And at one point, we had this uh, big TV we brought outside underneath uh, uh, one of those big – uh, big tents and it was all a two meth you know kind of taking a knee or sitting down in a horseshoe and all my marines from one meth kind of horseshoed around them and i had two guys up there giving a presentation with pictures of ieds we found or just we kind of prepared like a just overall readiness brief and it just kind of like this is what to expect even those guys had a lot of guys who are first-time deployers so just even common you know, what should be common knowledge to the high threat stuff they were asking questions. My brain's ranch, like to see that kind of a rip toa and see that kind of just uh, unity between canine brothers, between different mess. I, I dude, that was incredible. And a lot of that stem, me, me and Chuck are best friends. So uh, we kind of, you know, uh, kind of helped make, make that possible. But the Marines are the ones who actually, you got to be receptive. Like I yep. can sit there and teach you everything, but if you're not receptive to listen to it, then it doesn't mean anything. The same vice versa. If my guys were coming in cocky and did all this, like that didn't mean anything, but it wasn't, it was, Humble guys, like, dude, we went through this. We lost a guy. 
you know, this is what you expect. And it was their guys asking serious questions and, and taking that to account for them to go out and be successful. Yeah. So that was, that was, a, that was a, I still remember that moment. I've talked about that quite a bit. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a testament to the type of Marines that you had under your charge, you know, and then they definitely, they knew the reason, uh, and they probably were in those shoes coming in as 30 Marines. Yeah, I don't know if how was the turnover with the previous guys, or you all the first ones there? there was, they, they probably didn't have that, you know. Next question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So it's one <laughs> of those things where it's like, you know exactly what you're missing, and then those, like your group gave that to the next one. You know, was, so that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, we didn't, we didn't receive anything anything it was yeah yeah start from scratch correct um yeah so yeah we fast forwarded to you know your meth time and your deployment um and it's something that we've discussed kind of you know it's a little bit kind of where the podcast is right now it's kind of the inspiration uh because of the need for the military working dog and like the current theater of operations and then over the last you know 15 years of war the marine corps stood up you know the the mw platoons with the meth um if you don't mind, were like, how did you feel coming into like the the MAF? I guess was it MP Support Company back then? Your first time coming in, MP Support Company. Yeah, um, yeah man. So you look at if you kind of again just taking a, a wide lens at this thing, and we went from a law enforcement mission only. Nine eleven happens. We start developing additional skills and capabilities in the specialized search dog program, the uh, the combat tracking dog program. We developed YPG, which saved a lot of lives. That three-week pre-deployment course uh, from all branches, that course alone just saved a lot of lives, give them a, a realistic look before they deployed, and just some of the exposures you can have them there you can't have other places. Um, and then you got the MEFs that were, were uh, developed to uh, you know, kind of streamline the process and then have uh, all our operational dog team assets in one area. I think it just increased overall readiness and – you, I think you overall you saw too was the just the enhanced capability of the handlers. We can develop dogs all day long, and and you know the, the dog we can train them up to whatever mission we want to. What I think the Marine Corps does really well is developing the handlers, and we developed them as we brought the capabilities up to date. We developed that military policeman who was standing the gate wearing black gear and a badge up to being a guy who could go out with Marsoc and lead a patrol and get dirty with the boys, just like one of the operators. Like the skill set was there. We developed the uh, a combat mindset. Our training regiment changed. And it just to see that growth and see that development of the canine community and just the way my career fell from 99 to 2019 to get to see it all, man. And, I, you know, you, in the moment, you don't think about it. You just you just do work. Right. But then I've retired now. So you got time for some reflection and kind of looking back and you're like, man, that was a pretty special chapter in the overall Marine Corps history and especially the military working doll program. That 20 years is a, is a very special chapter. And some of the guys that, that the names we've talked about and even just, you know, the I felt like I felt like I, I, I had the benefit of uh, or I was very fortunate to have the best peer group coming up through the Marine Corps. Guys like Chris Knight, Chuck Rotenberry, Shane Green, um, that helped really kind of, they were just, again, you can't help when you're born, you can't help what's going on in the world, you right. can't help when you join the Marine Corps, but we joined at the right time when everything was going on and we were at the right rank, at the right place, just to help see some of these initiatives through. Um, 
And we also had this healthy competition about us. Like we pushed each other to get better, which I think is positive. Like it was never in a malicious thing. You know, it was just a good thing, man. It was yeah. like, uh, well, Shane's doing this. Like I'm on. <laughs> I got to step my game up, man. I didn't yep. want to. I didn't want to be the one slacking behind. Like this is my peer group, dude. Like we got a good group of guys, and we pushed each other in a really good way. And uh, man, I I couldn't. I mean, this is just very fortunate with those guys. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Um... And it's a it's a long stretch of time, but there's definitely the the group of Marines that you know you hear a lot of the names and stuff that really set the standard, and then that's that that's kind of like that legacy, I guess you know what I mean. Like the early ons, that early on generation that didn't have anything, you guys started from scratch, and then ultimately, like you said, like you developed the handlers. You know, like if you have, you know, you can have the best dog out there, but if it's you're not the bet like a decent handler, I mean, you're not a very capable team. You know, if, um, it's that team aspect and having the right yeah. people in the right position. Absolutely. And then can think on the fly and make those adjustments. You know? Absolutely. And and um, I've heard the best here recently, you know, trust your dog is like a common saying in canine. Yeah. Um, and someone broke it down to me differently. And they said, don't trust your dog. Trust your training. You're only good as your training. Yep. If you're training shit, like it doesn't matter what your dog does, but you got to trust your training. If you're trained well, um, then you're going to perform well. Like, And I, I like the way you put that, man. Like, yeah. I think that – uh, I think at the MEFs, no matter what MEF you served at, we took a lot of pride in just our performance, being combat ready, pushing each other to the next level, um, ensuring we're ready when our numbers were called because they were called pretty often at that point. And uh, it, it was just a, I think the the development of those things, the the battalions, the MEFs, whatever you want to call them, I think the development of those was a was a great idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, seven years, man. I require. I requested to go back after I spent my first four years there. Um, when we first set up MP Support Company and changed into the battalion, uh, I requested to go back after I got off MSG duty and was fortunate to go back and did another three years there. So I was, dude, I was one meth all day long, dude. Yeah. So Pendleton back to Pendleton. Yep. So um, speaking on quick on your your MSG duty, so you did leave. You know, you had. Whole twenty years, seventeen, you know, canine, and then you had three, obviously, with uh, your special duty assignment, as we like yeah. to call it in the Marine Corps. You gotta, you gotta get in somewhere. They're not gonna, you can't hide forever. Um, with that, like, what kind of, I guess, like leadership roles did? Um, obviously, as a deck commander at that point, but what kind of like leadership qualities and traits did you capture at the MEF and leading Marines? Not only like as an instructor, obviously, back in the combat. How did that prepare you to be that MSG commander? I think that, uh, for one, I, I went to MSG because I needed a mental break. Like, yep. at that point, I, I deployed four times in four years, and um, and I never processed, like, Corey Max's death. I just – it was nonstop. And my platoon was getting ready to go back to Afghanistan, and I was happy to go, but I'm, I know my wife wouldn't have left. She would have left me. Like, if I would have went. Like, she was right. she was burnt out. Our marriage was burnt out. Like, it was just – it was a lot of stress in our life. And, um, and so I, I needed a change, and um, – and I, I love the allure of just MSG duty. Go still live in another country, but just from a, a different mission right. set, you know. Um, I think my experiences at the MEF uh, helped prepare me because being part of that big platoon, you had to, you were kind of your S1, your S2, your S3, your S4. You had to be part of all of it right. to make that big beast work. Like it was like wrestling a bear every day, man. It was exhausting. And I loved every minute of it, but it was exhausting. And, but the good side is I learned all those and, and had to, you had to develop systems on how to be successful. You had to develop systems on how to be a forward thinker, 
to make th- make sure things aren't you know kind of falling between the cracks. You got to be a and and just being proactive in general, knowing that uh, rifle ranges and PMEs are coming up, and uh, you know every three uh, every quarter they're going to ask for a Marine of the Quarter package, and but knowing all that stuff, it's 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 out there. It's going to be consistent throughout the year. Well, you start looking ahead. You start breaking down your Marines into teams and assigning, and so it's not on you. And I think that kind of developing that that ability at the MEVs helped me out at MSG. The one thing that MSG taught me was I had uh, I had a, a, a female Marine out there, which I worked with female Marines, but it was different because there was only six of them or six or seven of them, and just me. Um, and you had to be everything for every one of them. Uh, and you're talking about young Marines who, uh, first time away from their their family for real, for real, right. and they're because you know, these are the young, these are the watchstanders, not deck commanders. So right. that taught me a lot because now I'm listening to a Marine complain about being in Helsinki, Finland, and I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> I lost, and I I never like that wasn't my persona, but I can't help that way I think. I was like, right. are we kidding me? Like I. So I had, it tested my patience. It tested me, like you know, looking for other resources and ways to deal with this, and how to be a good mentor for that marine in general, or just. Uh, so I, 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 but I gained a lot from that, and that helped me. I think I was even better when I went back to the MEF, just from the perspective that I, re, I received when I was on MSG duty. When it's literally just a one man, show. you you do everything. Like you're you're everything for those young marines, and including their growth and development as marines. And and none of them are dog handlers. Right. They all have different jobs. Like, so it wasn't necessarily about what their your day to day job of, of what you did. It's like it was basic Marine personal issues. I had to get used to dealing with like uh, at a different level than I had to at the MEF. Even having sixty Marines, like this was just it was different. It was more intimate. It was only six of them. Like I just had to, uh, and then it wasn't like I could get lost in the crowd of sixty Marines. Like I'm going to see that dude every day. Like, <laughs> so it was it was a different perspective, man, and it made you really kind of keen in on some of the you just your leadership qualities and make sure you're a good mentor and you can adapt to any kind of situation right no that makes sense and definitely i can see how the math just being you know in that leadership role the platoon sergeant the staff sergeant or a gunny you know you definitely you accomplish a lot in that platoon and then it definitely translates to uh the deck commander role for sure and uh <laughs> it's definitely you know because like um like you mentioned like dog handlers are their own breed you know they're they're hungry and then you have a mix of Marines, all different MOSs, you know, trying to get out to see the world and then maybe they might not want to be there anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and when that was a thing too, is in the ones who liked it, like, man, I, I love this. Like, I never want to go back to my regular job. I was right. like, I, I want to go back to BK now. Like, <laughs> I kind of love my job, man. I just yeah. needed a break. And I, I love my time on MSG, man. Like, you know, just very, very fortunate in my career. Right. And so when you come back from MSG, you said you went back to the math. Um, was there any big distinct differences you feel like um, were like in those three years coming back to Camp uh, Camp Hamilton, the Meth Platoon? No, it was uh, when I first got there. Um, it was a it was a bit of a mess. Like it was, I, I'd only been going for three years, but just not everybody leads the same way, and it was right. uh, um, it just it wasn't the same. It was it was pretty disheartening to be honest with you. Right. Like to go back and see the way it was was being ran and the way the the Marines weren't being engaged and weren't being challenged and trained the right way. And um, then we, we changed that, you know, I just had to get a couple of guys on my side to, to kind of buy it. It's almost like being a new head coach for a football team, right? right. You got to buy into my process and 
I'm going to guarantee you success, but you got to, if you're not buying in, it's not going to work. Uh, but I had guys like Paul Johnson and uh, Ramirez and uh, Derek Patrick and uh, Magical, some of the young guys, Magical and Loam, and just some incredible guys, man. And they they bought in. They were all in it, man. I just had to earn their trust in the beginning. And at that point, I had a little bit of a history behind me and my name. Um, but again, I didn't go in like that. I, I almost I, don't, I get nervous every time I PCS, like yeah. because the the more my like those guys knew about me before I got there. Like I said, your reputation is going to beat you. Uh, I don't want those dudes down. Like I don't want to make sure I'm not not living up to the hype. You know, I want to go right. out there. I'm gonna grind. I'm gonna I'm gonna earn it every day. Like I'm gonna stay humble but hungry. And uh, and I got those guys to buy into uh, the, the way I ran things. And I felt I remember sitting in the kennels one year after I got there, thinking like this feels like one meth again. It took a year, bro. Nice. Um, but that was. Those guys, they, they crushed. I mean, I just – I had another solid group, man. Like those – they put in the work. They they started taking ownership. And I probably saw some of the best sergeants that I've ever seen. Like sergeants were much better than me when I was a sergeant. Like because um, I put a lot on them to help, one, develop them. But, two, I, I, at that point I started understanding more about um, how to develop them the right way. Because the first time I was there as a staff sergeant, like I tried to do everything and, and – it was too much. It almost burnt me out. But now I'm like, dude, I can. I'm gonna make you successful. Uh, I'm gonna give you task and purpose, and I'm gonna establish realistic timelines. And then I would also have uh, a meeting once a month. But I actually took their advice. Like, hey, this is what we need to do. How are we doing it? You start getting people throwing in advice, and I'm taking it. And you're having like no shit, like saying how the platooners ran and ideas on how to set up more efficient systems because you might see it at a different level, and I see it. Now, now you got people who want to work for you instead of have to work for you. Right. And that's what we developed there and absolutely took it back up to where it needed to be and felt like a one meth standard. That's good. Yeah, definitely. Um, sometimes it happens and it doesn't take long for it to go south. You know, like Correct. just one, uh, <laughs> the Marine Corps PCSs people really quick sometimes. And then, yeah, it can be a totally different beast in through two, three years. Uh, and it's just the nature of the beast. But uh, there's definitely those Marines that come back to have the relevant experience to bring it back to where it needs to be and get the guys rolling again. Uh, so with your second time going back to the MEF, um, deployments in Afghanistan and stuff was kind of dwindling, dwindling down a little bit. Uh, did you guys have any more to Afghanistan and what was your next, I guess, like big mission? Uh, so uh, we were at that point we started supporting the, it was three different deployments. I was still sending guys on. One was the special purpose MAGTAF. Um, we had guys in uh, in Iraq. We had guys go end up going to Syria when that started kicking off. Uh, we had the the Muse. We started supporting them, but one meth did a little bit different where we actually forward staged our guys. So um, they went from uh, like Djibouti and Kuwait and places, just kind of staying ahead of and you know kind of just call as needed, and which I'll get to in a minute how that worked out for us. And then the the big thing is we started. Uh, Spartan Shield was was in Kuwait, and that was a means to one we established the first Marine kennels uh, over in Kuwait, and I had the opportunity to go set that up. So I was again deployed with uh, it was a four of my Marines and then four Marines from Tumef to establish that at, at um, Camp Buring. We're just like I think like ten miles south of Iraq, right? Um, and I had. My other guys were deployed in in uh, in Kuwait. We started bringing them up, and we started building a little little Marine K nine Empire in the middle of Army Town. <laughs> and uh, 
we started launching guys out to, to Syria from there and developed a pretty good uh, – for what was going on at that time, like it was right. still a pretty good operational tempo for what we could – again, for what, it wasn't a whole lot going on, but I still had guys in Iraq, Syria, and then in Kuwait at the, when I went back the, the second go-around. Now, it wasn't uh, – um, obviously, it wasn't nothing like the Iraq-Afghanistan days, but, again, you you got to you, – you deal with what's going on in that current time, and right. and that's what we did. And, I, again, I just – that was a that was a good deployment for us. Yeah, that's good. Definitely, um, everyone, all the handlers then are still looking for work, you know. And then, yep. biggest thing too, it's like leadership, and even at the program level, trying to get work or filling requests where it's needed to, you know. So definitely, I think it's the best way to be out there where you're kind of pre-staged, predetermined location. That way, it's easier for any any unit that needs support to get them, you know, because trying to get them to chop over from the states. All the way to the location. I mean, the Victor units are like the infantry units are 100 percent filled every time, yeah. and so it's hard to get them to bump off one of the numbers just to fill a dog handler. But um, no, it's definitely where I think the I want to say it was the last, I guess, like big, I guess, Marine deployments right for for the MEFs. And when we say MEFs, I keep throwing we keep saying MEF and stuff, and I'm guilty of it too in the last uh, episodes, but. Don't want to discount because there's people like I'll call them the, the law enforcement battalions, you know. But it's just what we designate with the higher. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm good with calling them enough, man. <laughs> yeah, I was thing. I was at I was at Camp Pendleton PMO before MP Support Company, right. and we were deploying guys. We had SSDs and trackers. I deployed out of there. We developed MP Support Company. And I deployed out of there. We developed the MEF, uh, the 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 LA battalion. I deployed out of there. It was the same kennels, dude. It yep. was. So it's a meth kennels. Like it was, exactly. at the end of the day, it was one meth, two meth, three meth. That's kind of you know. And I know company commanders didn't like that, but <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't care. Yeah, I don't know. no one cared. I'm okay. I mean, yeah. We always, uh, yeah, we always refer it to the meth. Absolutely. Um, so with the uh, with Kuwait, you know, you said like you were able to stand up that kind of build up your own little Marine Corps canine stuff in the middle of the army, and then rotating back, um, and then you actually. Towards the end of your career, you left Camp Pendleton to fill in a program manager role with uh, the Marine Special Operations. Yep. Yep. So I got uh, when I was out at Pendleton, we developed a really good relationship with the West Coast um, uh, MARSOC teams, the right. NPC teams. We did a lot of joint training. Uh, we helped them out. They helped us out. And again, your your reputation kind of gets ahead of you. And uh, they tried to get me to come out there when I was a gunner sergeant, you know, but it was a mass art billet and a um, and Marsart basically just said, no, it's got to be a Marsart. So I waited my time. I actually got promoted on that deployment to Kuwait, went up to the Iraq border and got pinned on. Awesome. What was cool about that to me is uh, I got pinned on by Ramirez and Magical, and I outranked <laughs> them. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, I didn't have anybody over there that outranked me that I respected enough to put a new Chevron on me. But right. I, did, I worked for my dudes, and uh, to have those two guys pin me on was pretty special to me. I, yeah, that's awesome. I, I dig it, man. So – so I was mass starting now, come up for orders and and um and went to Camp Lejeune and took over the the Marsoc uh, multi-purpose canine program uh, for my last couple of years in the Marine Corps. And so getting there as a program manager, and that's something we haven't really talked at all really in the episodes, is like the early start of the NPC program, and then knowing where how you grew up in canine, and I guess kind of the reputation with the multi-purpose canine, and then versus you know. Meth handlers, just normal conventional fifty-eight twelves, you know, deploying to support Marsoc teams. Um, how did you feel getting over there and witnessing the teams, you know, and, and how how they perform and how the program is? 
Yeah, I uh, again, before I even checked in, I was nervous. Again, okay, they knew who I was, and I didn't want to let them down. I was like, I, I don't – they just, again, just push his performance. Like, I'm, I'm going to go out there and grind for you dudes. And you check in, and um, you start kind of get your, your feet wet and understanding of things, and and then certain people start sticking out to you. And I, I'll mention the names who don't who are off the program now, um, but like Alex Schnell, uh, Sean Hemphill, Brandon Marquez, uh, Sonny Fernandez, like top-notch dudes, man. Like, and understanding the operational tempo they maintain for sometimes up to six, seven years, incredible. I mean, Sean Hemphill had five deployments in six years with Marsoc and some nasty areas. Like, it's just incredible, like, what these guys uh, would do. And it's like pay, basically just taking, like, your, your you know, in one MEF I had 60 Marines – it's just like taking your your heaviest hitters and then putting them in one place right. uh, that just had a handful of handlers. Like, so the the quality of marine wasn't any different. They're still marines, but you just you got that that, that you know the, the best of the bunch. Right. And I, and I think within Marsoc too. I mean, everybody's racked and stacked. Like I said earlier, like everybody you're gonna rack and stack them. So out of my handlers, not getting into numbers they have there, but you still you got your top third, your middle third, your bottom third. Um, but man, the top third stuck out to me. Like they were just. They were different, man. Like they were, they put in more work and more hours and and training and developing the young guys who were coming through, uh, more time away from home. Like even when they were back off deployment, they weren't back off deployment. They were still or went back home. Like they were going to training missions and uh, going to field training exercises and chopping to their new team. And sometimes you would come back from a deployment and then chop right to another team and do another six month workup just to go back out again. Right. And it got to the point where you got to look out for those guys in spite of themselves. Like, no, my sergeant, I can go again. Like, bro, I know you can, <laughs> but you got a family, or you got this. Like, I've got options. I can, uh, you know, I, I, you got to look out for some of them in spite of themselves. But it all, it's all good intention. They just want to go go back out again, man. And I can right. understand that. Um, but yeah, man, I, I love that program. It was, we did some tweaking. We tried to change up some of the pipeline stuff, and and I think enhanced that and and uh, made it better and. That just, I think your ultimate goal is any kind of person in leadership position is just leave it better than you found it. And so that's what we did. And I think the biggest thing out of that was uh, I had more of an opportunity to go out and recruit guys to be dog handlers for MARSOC. Where at the MEF, you you kind of select who comes to the MEF. You know, they, they get off the bus and you bring 10 of them in and right. try to pick four of the 10. But this way, I could have. As long as you, know, you still got to work with, they got to be on a duty station three. I can't go take a guy who's been on station for six months. I still work with the constraints of the Marine Corps, but I could take them from anywhere, just being proactive and going out, putting my feelers out. And a lot of my one meth guys uh, helped me out a lot because they after they left one meth, they started spreading throughout the Marine Corps. Uh, Magical, uh, uh, Rosendo Magical, I hit him up like, man, you got anybody out in Okinawa uh, that could, yeah, here's, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what I want to. I need to get these top hitters out here, um, and he, he and the guy's still on the program, so I won't say his name. Dude, dude's top notch. Like, so going out and kind of head hunting, and using guys that you trust their reference, and picking guys, and we put together uh, one class. I don't think it'll be touched. Like, and it would just ensure the that's the best way to protect your program is recruiting the right guys to come in. Right, and um, I think that was a that was a. Uh, I love having that kind of a positive control where I can, I can have more influence on who is coming in the program and just having the, the, the money and the resources you have at Marsoc 
if we wanted to do something that would enhance our capabilities, very supportive command. Dude, go go handle business. I had to do it very minimal on the admin side. If it makes sense, if it's going to help us uh, meet mission, if it's going to enhance our capabilities to go support the teams, dude, go take care of business. And that's exactly what we did, man. And can't can't speak highly enough about those guys. Man, it's definitely a it's definitely unique um, hearing that, and then knowing how like the conventional meth is, or just like in general, like the the working dog program. And so sometimes like you're fighting tooth and nail just to get a piece of gear through your units, you know, training command. And then if you have the freedom and flexibility to to develop your team, you know, with the proper gear, the right training and the right person at the right time, you know, it's definitely beneficial. For sure. a- absolutely, man. And I, and I think there's something to be said for the, again, going back and I go back and forth. So I, I, again, I, I love, I love the whole Marine Corps canine program, <laughs> but going back to our meth guys, th- they still crushed it and they still stayed hungry and, and, did the, did all the dirty work without all the resources of the fancy training and the right. fancy gear. And they still went over handle business and made a great name, you know, bringing up those guys again. And, you know, to my, my, my first MEF crew was guys like Jay Gonzalez and Brandon DeLeon and Danny Cornier and Adriciano, you know, Aguirre, uh, Incolade, like Juan Rodriguez, like all those guys crushed it without the benefit of having because that point you know npc wasn't a thing it was just and we actually were supporting to fill that void until they kind of got another another but then no you give me the choice i'm gonna gonna give me some extra resources and stuff but much 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 respect to those guys that still did it without that but then you go see the guys who benefited from it and and, you know they had the right mentality and at the end of the day you still got to have some basic concepts you got to still have a strong work ethic an unselfish team first mentality and some humility too. You got to have those three things. And at that point, I don't care where you work, but you, you can be successful. So, but you go get all the toys in the world at Marsog. And if you're a shithead, you're a shithead, you know what I'm saying? So, but some of those guys absolutely flourished in that system and were just, just amazing warriors, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Um, Cause back then there was the bare necessities. You know what I mean? You had your dog, your training said, trust your training. And you really, benefiting off the lessons learned and the prior um, experiences from your senior handlers and, and making it work on the fly, you know, where you're at. Uh, so if we backpedal a little bit with Luca, um, and if people aren't familiar, I'm sure they, they've heard it, you know, but uh, your experience with Luca and Luca's life and then a little bit of your career was captured in the book Top Dog and then how you got to choose that hey i'm gonna assign luca to another handler which was juan rodriguez um and in the book you even said like you know where you kind of identified him a little early on like i knew your your time on leash was coming to an end and you already had one person in mind um can you kind of uh just touch on you know like luca's like last last few deployments and stuff or, or last handler oh absolutely yeah yeah so um Juan Rodriguez was, uh, he was one of my one meth Marines who was with me in Afghanistan in 2010. And he had a, at that time, a patrol dog named Rolf, a patrol explosive detection dog. And we get back. And I, at this point, I know I've been there for four years. Like it's time for me to go. Like, and that's when I, I was mentally kind of burned out. And that's when I put in for MSG duty. I went to Helsinki, Finland the same week my platoon went back to Afghanistan uh, picking Juan Rodriguez was a was an easy choice. Like that dude was just he had the same a similar mentality. He had, it was a great um, like uh, even kill training mindset. He wasn't too much either way positive or 
compulsion. Like he was just a uh, very well versed uh, handler, and I would say a junior trainer status, but a, a really competent handler. And he did a really good job in combat. Like um, very, just very confident in his capabilities. And he was just very. He was. He was not very. Uh, he's very soft spoken. Like he just wasn't say a lot, but he he spoke with his performance. And they got paired together. They started, uh, and I gave him like a basically a book on Luca and her instruction manual, and um, and then they 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 paired up. They started going through all their training regiment, building rapport, and they started clicking, and man, it just made an incredible dog team, man. Like they, again, Luca was something truly special, uh, and I think the one and Luca combination just it just made sense. And you know, November they go back to Afghanistan. And one now is not now instead of like four, there might have been like ten or twelve guys who had deployed previously, and one being one of them. And so they uh, they go out with they get tasked to go work with ODA with the uh, uh, seventh group. And they're four months into their patrol or into their deployment, and they'd already had a couple fines, and they were doing a really good job over there. And they're going to leave a, a tree line to go uh, hit a compound. And on their way, Luca found an IED. And at that point, in general, your, your your thought process is when there's one, there's two. When there's two, there's three. Like, there's my known threat. Where are my unknown threats? And so he started following his standard procedures, and unfortunately, a secondary device detonated. And it was a small one. It was like a little toe popper, but it was enough to uh, damage her front left leg uh, and and cause some pretty bad shrapnel uh, in her – not shrapnel, but burns up to her leg. And – He's, and he'll tell you, like, man, at first he uh, kind of shock kicks in about what just happened, and then seconds later, like, your training kicks in. And that's that's not just your dog. That's one of your Marines. Like, right. So he ran up and grabbed Luca, uh, did a hasty tourniquet just to stop the initial bleeding, picked her up, ran her back to the patrol. They got her back to the tree line, and then her and the medic went to work. Uh, but it was one quick accident that saved her life, like, absolutely. And – then they got her really wrapped up, really bandaged up tight. Everything was stopped and gave her some morphine and um, called in a medevac, medevac for two. You know, we get medevac with our dogs and same medevac procedures as Marines get. Um, and they they were on their way, stopped by a Leatherneck real quick. And at that point, Leatherneck's like, dude, there's nothing else we can do. Like, she's good. Like, you you know, we need to go somewhere else for some extensive treatment. But as far as, like, the life-saving, like, right. she's good. Like, you you did your job, bro. Like, one. One's the reason why Luca's alive right, and lived through that. I was in Helsinki feeling, and I would keep in touch with the platoon. I was actually collecting care packages and sending them over to Afghanistan. And uh, Joe Phillips, one of my buddies, who was an Air Force dog handler, and he was actually in Afghanistan on a, on a contract. He sent me an email and said, hey, there's been an incident. Uh, Luca was injured. Juan's completely fine. Uh, Luca's going to make it. Uh, but just you know, get in touch uh, as soon as you can. What he did, what what Joe did was he gave me enough information to know that the, the one there was an uh, an, inc- an incident, but two he he gave me enough to know one's fine, like and Luca's gonna be fine, like so that there's a little piece of me that's I, I I didn't freak out completely, but it's almost like if your son gets in a car crash or something, like you want to know every little detail, like it's not okay until I see him and talk to him and and find out exactly like what's going on, so. Uh, I actually called the kennels in, in Afghanistan. I was able to talk to one uh, just a, hour, a few hours after it happened. And we talked about uh, how he was doing. Like, uh, you know, 
Juan felt like he let me down, which is furthest from the truth. Like, and I can understand where it's coming from because you know, I'd had Luca from the beginning. I'd trained her. I'd deployed with her twice. Uh, we knew that she wasn't going to be able to deploy again after this one because she's going to be you right. know nine years old, wouldn't be ready to do another workup. So I was going to adopt her after that. We already had that conversation, um, and I was like, "Dude, you you did what you're supposed to do, man. Like it's combat. There's nothing guaranteed over there. Like it's it's a dangerous situation, dude. Like he you saved her life. Like I wanted to drive that point home, like because I could tell he was hurting and it that killed me, man. Like uh, and as much as I love Luca, like that's that's my dude. That's one. You know what I'm saying? That's the Marine. Like I need to yeah. focus on him first, and then we turned our attention to Luca and I was asking about her and I was like, bro, she's, that's a tough girl. Like she's gonna be fine, man. And, uh, we stayed in touch throughout the whole, uh, transition back to the States. And they did that, uh, surgery, uh, over in Afghanistan and they, uh, removed her front left leg and, uh, she was walking in 10 days, no permanent ear or eye damage. And most importantly, had the same spirit that she had before the injury. Like right. I've seen dolls go through a lot less and suffer a lot more. And for her to be, uh, injured by an IED and still be the same goofball, the same Luca that could chill out and do the funky chicken and do all that, you know, yep. goofy stuff. Like she had the same, it was the same dog. Like, dude, and she, they, they said, man, she's going to live just as long with three legs as she was before. It just take a little bit of an adjustment phase. And that's exactly what happened. And she went back to Pendleton. They started rehabbing her there. And then she was injured March 23rd, 2012. July 6, 2012, we were reunited in Helsinki, Finland. So they they get uh, – at that point, Shane Green was the kennel master, you know, one of my good buddies, one of my, my peer groups. So we Again, one of those dudes, me and him, pushed each other to be successful. He's the one to help coordinate everything. Uh, they flew Luca and won a first class uh, out of um, – they flew out of gate K-9. Like, they put a lot of detail in that. Nice. Yeah, perfect. And then, uh, when they landed in Helsinki – they had it was my ambassador, some press, and my family, and um, they unloaded everybody else in another terminal and just unloaded Luca and one uh, at that terminal. And I'm nervous, man. Like I was like, man, I, I know it's only been a few months, but like, what if his dog don't recognize me? It's really embarrassing. And uh, they're like, here, here they come, and they come walking down a little breezeway, and they turn and and I called her name and. Luca's not a dog that licks a whole lot, but right. she came running up and jumped up on me with her one front leg and started licking my face. And dude, and I stood up and gave Water you know, Juan a good hug. And he stayed with us for like the next ten days. And Luca stayed in his room, and it served as a good transition for Luca. But more right. importantly, as a chance for me to like personally thank Juan for saving her life and making sure he understood that I'm, you know, dude, we're you 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 did what you're supposed to do, bro. Like you yep. you saved Luca's life. Like you were in a combat situation and. Shit happens, like, uh, but man, it was, it was a it was a really good trip over there. Like, just had one or two beers, and that was it. All ten days. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. So with that, like, um, and obviously, like, you know, everyone feels bad if, uh, you know, like you said, like he might have felt like you know he let you down, got her hurt, and everything. But in the end, like that's the nature of of the job because a dog doesn't know they're finding something dangerous, right? Absolutely. And so with with your experience and like everything you've discussed so far. I mean, you've you've experienced the far spectrum, right, of every asset of the program right now, and then you retired in it, and also experienced like the worst, right, of loss. Absolutely. And so you said you'll speak on it um, a little bit forward, but like, what kind of advice would you give to like current veterans now that it's the end of the kind of the war, 
the canine program of deployment canines are like really dialing down. It's going back to its old stage. And some of them are now are kind of like processing their whole experiences. They're getting out of that op tempo. They might be in the Marine Corps or as a civilian. Uh, what would you, you know, give them kind of a advice on their processing? I would say, uh, number one, just be proactive in your mental health. Like just, just under, like when I, when I retired and I'd, I'd mentored countless Marines who had gotten out. I know that first, for most of them, it seemed to be like six months to 12 months, which is tough. You know, you get out of that, that, that brotherhood, you get out of that operational tempo and you're married. So you go back to your hometown. There's no canine job there. So you end up doing something you don't necessarily want to do. And then now you just have time to reflect on all the stuff you used to do. And nobody, nobody gives a shit back home. Not your family, but just people on the street. They don't know that right. that young Marine who just did six years, five years, did two tours to Afghanistan. And not that you walk around talking about it, but you still, you just feel kind of isolated. And that's what happened to a lot of Marines. And and they all get through, the, you know, they go through their mental process. So I was prepared for it to be difficult transition out of that environment. Uh, the, the worst part for me was COVID because that shut down everything for um, months and I've got to, I know, I know myself well enough to know I got to stay active. Like I can't sit idle and I, I start thinking too much about Corey and Max and the other stuff that happened on deployment. Um, that was brutal, man. That was like, I went through some dark times, like several times throughout my career, uh, usually sitting around obviously combat shit. Um, that was probably one of the worst was just, I was, I was prepared for it to be tough and just separating in general, but I wasn't prepared for like the deployment demons to come back and, and, and like I said, COVID didn't help me out because I didn't have anything. The gyms were, everything was closed. All my outlets were closed. Like I couldn't, you can't go anywhere. Right. Um, that was brutal, man. Like that was like, um, you start going on a pass, you don't need to go down. Sure. So I would say stay proactive in your, in your mental health. And that could mean a several things. Like there's counseling that you can get for free that I, I mean, I still, I go to counseling. I'm not free. You know, I'm okay to admit, like it used to be like a bad juju thing like oh you can't talk about mental health like dude i, I just want to be a better version of myself for my family now like they they put through up through enough so whatever i gotta do to get myself you know better or at least like manageable like i'm I'm okay with that um i think one thing we're doing kind of special is we started this uh marine canine reunion uh we had our first one last year uh we're having another one in san antonio in, in 2021 and the therapeutic nature of those is undeniable just to get back to be around those same like-minded individuals, Marine dog handlers, regardless if you served or not together and tell old stories, make some new ones. And I had guys that were from my first time in one meth and guys from my second time in one meth. And they just met up out in like Montana and they never met each other until <laughs> that reunion. And they had the common bond of canine I received so many positive messages just like that was good for my soul. Like just being around those guys. So social media is great for a lot of things like far as staying connected for uh, makes it easier to stay connected. Messages and texts only go so far, but making a phone call, finding a reason to get up and, and be around the guys that you used to serve with even just once a year. And that just generates more conversation for the next one. And the build up for the next one starts to come and you get excited you go out there, you make some new memories, you relive some old good memories. It's and it's just healthy. And also it gives you, you can identify stuff in people like 
dude, let's go talk, man. I see what you're, I see what you're going through, man. I've been there. Like, um, there's something special about that, dude. So I think that the, the number one thing is just being proactive in your own mental health and understanding that it's okay to not be okay and that you can find resources to uh, take those small steps to to get where you don't have the anger or the guilt or the anxiety and all that stuff. So under, accepting that it's okay to not be okay and then being proactive in how you're going to deal with it. You're a Marine. Like, find a way to complete that mission. Right. Definitely good words, and it, um, it's always good to hear from, especially someone as yourself, you know, like that has gone through all those experiences. And another key word is like mentor. There's a lot of, a lot of guys that look up to you as a mentor. And I think for sure now, and even just the conversations I'm having with a bunch of other handlers and stuff, you know, it, it's definitely their time to kind of process everything. And it's an ongoing thing. It's nothing that's going to get fixed. It's, it's a con- constant work for, uh, for the individuals. Um, so kind of to you know wrap wrap this up. Um, no, you're retired now, and then you're with the president. You've taken over the the U.S. War Dog Association. Um, would you mind giving a little brief on that? Yeah, absolutely, man. So uh, the the U.S. Uh, War Dog Association was established in 2000 by five Vietnam dog handlers. They had the goal of just raising money to dedicate a statue, that, like a war dog statue, to kind of pay respects for past dog handlers. And those five individuals did not work together. They represented three branches of service, and they met at a reunion in the late 90s. So kind of tying back into that, just right. you never know what's going to come out of being around dog handlers, um, fellow dog handlers. And then uh, they raised the money. They dedicated the statue in 2006. Well, at that point, 9-11 happened. We started deploying more dog handlers, uh, and they started supporting them with care packages. And from there, it just became and developed into a – a full uh, life cycle of practical support for military working dogs. So while they're active duty, we'll send care packages overseas. We'll also help out with like specialized equipment. I know it's tough sometimes when I was in the Marine Corps to get certain gear. Um, uh, hit us up on the hit us up, and we'll be able to help that out. And we won't tell your supply officer. <laughs> and uh, when the dog retires, we have a, a military working dog service award doesn't have to have any criteria of a deployment. It does. That's not about that. If it loans a dog was assigned to a permanent duty station, you know, it wasn't like a washout at Lackland, as long as it's assigned to a duty station, we'll send you a, a, an award or certificate. And I think what's important about those is, uh, obviously you get some people ask dumbass questions like, well, the dog doesn't care about an award. Like, okay, well, no shit. But it's more about celebrating and giving the dog, a, 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 you kind of put an explanation point on that dog's career. Yep. When that dog is gone and 50 years from now and you have your shadow box and you have this award is still any kind of a tie-in to that dog, that means a lot to the handler. Absolutely. I've got a million pictures of Luca. I wish I had two million. Like, you can never have enough once they're gone. Um, so it's more it's more than just, like, celebrating the dog. It's, there's a lot more to it than that. So I, I love that program. Um, and then the biggest thing, dude, is in retirement. So when I retire, I get VA uh, coverage for, you know, medical expenses – well, our dogs don't do that. You know, thanks to uh, the Robbie Law in 2000, handlers are able to adopt their dog out. And if any handler is able, uh, able to, they're going to because that dog means a lot to them. But I ain't talking about a dog who's nine years old, 10 years old, and it's going to have some uh, a fi- you know, price tag with it due to, you know, whether it's joint issues or hip issues or whatever. And, uh, and we gladly do it because that's my Marine. That's my dude. That's the dog that you know, save my life or I just serve with that dog and have that connection, which is stronger than any kind of a, uh, you know, like a pet connection. It's different, different level. 
what we do at the War Dog Association is we cover those prescription medications free of charge to the handler. And right now we're supporting over 1,100 retired military working dogs by paying their prescription medications every month to take uh, alleviate that uh, financial burden to the handler. And then we have some additional programs like get a little more specialized in the medicine. Feel free to check out our uh, website at uswardogs.org. Uh, you'll see some additional programs, a little more smaller scale. But we got a little bit of a thing for everybody to take care of the dogs. We've got anxiety blankets for dogs that have issues with thunderstorms and, you know, firework displays and um, we got wheelchairs for dogs and, and then when the dog passes on, we'll cover the cremation and the urn for the, for the handler again, just to help alleviate some of the financial burden and, and, uh, give that celebration of life that the dog deserves. So I think that for me, man, I talking about being proactive in your own mental health. Like this is therapy for me, bro. Like I love it. I love like being part of this association where I can still support the military working dogs, active and retired. I'm still tied into that community. And I'm able to help out where I, you know, wherever we can. And we're always looking for that next conversation. Every program we have was developed because of a conversation between uh, Ron Aiello, who was the first president, and a dog handler. And when they realized, like, just through talking, like, oh, there's, we don't have anything in place to meet that need. Like, we'll, we'll do it. We'll meet that need. We'll pay those prescription medications. Oh, we'll make the connections. We'll get you wheelchairs. So I'm looking for that next conversation, man, to, What's the next program going to be? What more of a need can we meet um, to help you know, help out facilitate the retirement of these military working dogs, to help out the handler? And at the end of the day, if you're taking care of that that dog, you're taking care of that veteran. So, it's again, it's a lot deeper purpose than supporting the military working dogs. And I absolutely love it, bro. It's, it's, I'm, 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 you know, it's my therapy to be able to continue to help out in that capacity. Yeah, that's awesome. It uh, sounds like it has an awesome reputation that continues to do so and do great things for the – for the working dog community and yeah like i said like it's you know it definitely allows you to channel that passion because you're definitely very passionate about the whole program you spent the majority of your military career and then your your young adulthood you know into uh the working dog program and the war dog association you know it's phenomenal i'm excited to see how it progresses and how you know other programs develop and other guys jump in on it and you know just help out to spread the word um and that's you know and that's like for all branches, every military working dog, you know, like not any specific Marine Corps thing. It's no, just every Marine, just Marines. I'm just yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's for uh, do so uh, DOD wide, man. Any any military working dog out there, active or retired, you need support. Hit us up. Well, we've got a plethora of programs that help meet different needs of of whatever stage of their career or retirement they're in, and uh, we're getting ready to launch a membership program next year. Uh, so again, it's a way to kind of for individuals just to give a little bit, but a bunch of little bits into a lot of support for our military dogs. And um, and we're just if, if you want if something that you're passionate about, if you want to be a part of the U.S. War Dog Association in any capacity, maybe hit us up, man. We're always looking to kind of build our team stronger and stronger. And uh, a lot of the guys that work with me now are Alex uh, Schnell, my Marsock handler, yep. Sean Hemphill, Marsock handler, Danny Cornier, one meth handler. Ramirez, one meth handler, like uh, Kent Farrell, two meth handler. So it's just, it's just a bunch of you know, a bunch of guys who came together at the right time. Chuck Rotenberry's my vice president, um, uh, best friend. Went to canine school with him in two thousand. Like uh, we just added Amy Dickin, who's a uh, fifteen years in the marketing and fundraising from a large uh, animal charity over in England. Like we've got a really strong team put together, and uh, just looking always to kind of advance our mission. So. If it's something that you're interested in, just please hit us up. Sure. Absolutely. I think it's uh I think it's phenomenal. 
And it sounds like you got a good crew and uh, there's plenty of people that would join in in a heartbeat for sure. Um, yeah, Chris, I mean, I can't thank you enough. Like it's, uh, definitely covered a lot of information in this, uh, in this, you know, conversation. Um, I know you're a busy man, you know, sitting down, taking an hour, two hours out of your time is a pretty big deal, but you know, what better way to talk about dogs and then your experience in the program and shedding light into, you know, some aspects that not everyone gets to hear at all. So I can't thank you enough and I really appreciate your time. Dude, I love your mission, man. Keep telling the stories, keep the legacies alive and get all this history recorded. So for future generations, when we go back to war again, we've got people that have recorded what the lessons learned were. So appreciate this time, dude. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be fun. Chris and his Marines walked the path of a dog handler during a very active time in Afghanistan. A path few will ever know and even fewer will ever understand. The Marines from all three MEF military working dog platoons experienced some of the heaviest combat during the Afghan war from 2010 to 2012, with 2010 being the deadliest year. Chris has experienced just about every aspect of the Marine Corps program, the good, the bad, and the ugly. His massive working experience has prepared him to be a true subject matter expert and directly contributed to the military working dog program by not only providing critical input in developing training programs, but also mentoring and developing new military working dog handlers to continue the mission. Chris continues to give back to the military working dog community by currently serving as the president of the United States War Dog Association, an association that exists to provide a lifetime of practical support to military working dogs, their handlers, and adopted families. Check out their website and social media pages for updates as this organization helps military working dogs live out the retirement they deserve and consider donating to help the organization to continue their support. And if you have a retired military working dog, check them out and reach out if you need any help. We will continue the MEF military working dog story with more MEF handlers that deployed during this time frame. If you are a handler that is interested in sharing your story on the podcast or just providing key insight and information, send me a message. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and thank you for tuning in. If you guys want to support this podcast, check out the link in the description. And as always, I look forward to hearing your story. Thank you and take care.